this episode, Justice League America, number 35, and Justice League Europe, number 11. Cover dated February 1990. Hello, and welcome to the 35th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is The Irritable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not doing this alone. Thankfully, I'll be joined by two different guest hosts to help me cover these issues. We'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later, but for now, my first co-host today has been a media scholar and critic for more than 20 years. He's a member of the San Francisco Film Critics Circle, and his film reviews have appeared in the San Francisco Chronicle, HuffPost, and the Philadelphia Weekly. In addition to being a father of five children, he somehow finds the time to co-host numerous podcasts as well. Personally, I, I just think he doesn't sleep. Now, we all know <laughs> that professional critics are universally beloved, so I'm just dying to know if my guest considers himself more of a Statler or a Waldorf. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Zaki Hassan. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Zaki. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Fantastic. So, as a film critic, you know, it's, that's got to be a tough gig. As I said, they're, they're universally beloved, right? Everyone, everyone, you know, <laughs> no one has opinions on movies but critics so uh so how does that translate to you when you're critical about comics do you get the same kind of positive loving feedback from people who read your reviews or, or hear about how your feelings well the nice thing is i don't really put out my comic criticism uh, unless i'm on a podcast like this and i'm just talking to fans and geeking out about stuff that i love it, it's like a perfect escape <laughs> so what what is the craziest response you've gotten from like a superhero movie review you've done uh, I'm still getting hate mail four years later for giving Batman vs. Superman a negative review. <laughs> Wow, like, that's yeah. insane. Because, yeah. you know, history has not been kind to that movie. So <laughs> it, It's like, guys, turn the page, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. Come on, you're getting a Schneider cut of Justice League. Back off, everybody. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and what's funny is, I, I would say, in the four years since, my opinion of that movie has softened, not to the extent that I, I mean, I disliked it then. I'm not a particularly big fan of it now, but I'm like, all right, whatever. Folks like it, and it's fine. Just let's move on, you know? Right. Um, and, you know, because I, I see people, like, still hating on it vehemently and viciously and i'm also like okay come on it's time you know i put this on twitter all the time you get six months that's my arbitrary but binding window to be pissed off about a movie six <laughs> months, work through it get it all out of your system and then find your joy and move on <laughs> i'm still pissed about wizard of oz and the oscars so. there you go see that it's not it's time buddy you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta let that one go <laughs> i'll work on it i'll work on it oh geez all right fair enough well we can sit here and talk about about movies all day long, but I want to talk about some comic books. So in order to do that, let's first go ahead and thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the Justice League International Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode will select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually it's tied to that month's issue of JLI in some way, or just it's something we want to talk about. I'll go first. Uh, I picked Huntress Origins Trade Paperback. Now, this is a great collection. 
collection of those 1970 stories that we all love of the Earth 2 Huntress when she was first introduced as the daughter of Batman and Catwoman. We're talking to Paul Levitz and Joe Staten doing a fantastic job with those Wonder Woman backups and the, the DC superstars and the Batman family, all that stuff. It's normally $19.99, but in in-stock trades right now, you can get it for 42% off, so it's only $11.59. And that's 224 pages with a Brian Ballin cover. So that's not too bad. That's not too bad at all. And Huntress has a little bit to do in this issue, so I thought it was a good time to plug that one. Now, Zachy, did you happen to bring an in-stock trades pick? Because all the cool kids do. I, I will mention the thing that I just most recently ordered from in-stock trades, which is the Ben Riley Omnibus Volume <gasps> 2. Awesome. And, you know, it's funny, is is the Clone Saga was the point where I jumped off of Spider-Man when it was first coming out in the, in the 90s. Uh, looking back on it now as a finite story, it's a very long, finite story, but it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's actually a pretty good read, you know? And, and so I've been enjoying going through that. And this was the last piece of that story that I've been waiting to arrive. So it's, it's worth a look. I think for anyone who's held off on the clone story, this is worth a read. It's, it's so much fun. I actually reread the Clone Saga uh, probably about two, three years ago. I dipped in my toe and I'm like, well, because I read it when it was coming out at the time. And I'm like, I'll give this a try again. It, like 78, 80 comics later, I'm like, oh my gosh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize I get sucked back in. Because you're right. Once you know that there's an ending point, it's a fun roller coaster. There's some crazy bonker stuff in there, but it is a really enjoyable sort of artifact and uh, sort of uh, adventure. Yeah, I, I agree. So, folks, you can find that on InStock Trades as well as a whole bunch of other choices. So, please go out there and support our sponsor, InStockTrades.com. Also, this episode is sponsored in part with your Patreon support because running the Firewater Podcast with so many shows requires a whole lot of online hosting and other services. Now, for many, many years, the, the hosts of the network just absorbed this cost ourselves, but they've grown considerably. And we launched the Patreon, and you guys really stepped up to help. And I can tell you, if it weren't for the Patreon support, this network would not still be on the air. So, thank you so much. And if you're enjoying shows like the JLI podcast. The best way to support them is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. And while you're there, you can look at all the different sponsorship levels, and at certain levels, we will thank you on the particular show of your choice. We sincerely appreciate everyone, including these particular folks who've chosen to be honored on the JLI podcast. Bill Beer, Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, Devin Clancy, George William, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, and Sean Ross. Again, our thanks to all the patrons and please visit us at patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Now, folks, we want to hear from you. This is an amazing issue of Justice League America. We want to hear your thoughts on it. Go out to the social medias. We're out there as Justice League International uh, Blahaha Podcast on Facebook, JLI Podcast on Twitter. You can use our hashtag pound fwpodcast because it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. We want your feedback, folks. It's, it's critically important because there's a lot to talk about here and there's a lot to stuff to unpack that has uh, foreshadowing for the future, I would say. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, Zachy, it is time for a chat with a guest. Would you please tell us your origin story with the JLI? How did you fall in love with the book? How did you find it? What, what does it mean to you? Oh, my gosh. So this is it's such a special run for me, you know, and the great thing about this podcast existing is the realization that so many other people love this run. Because I remember in the late 90s when the Morrison era happened, and, and that's great. I was trying to fill in the gaps of my JLI run, and it felt like this this special thing that only I, I knew about, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. and, and so this is, this is just it's like oh no, we are legion. It's the wrong podcast, but we are legion. We got, <laughs> we got, 
There's so many of us, you know. So my personal introduction to the the Justice League International happened in fall of 89. So this is post-Batman 89. I feel like many people of our vintage Batman 89 is kind of that, one of those seminal events, you know what I mean? It's a touchstone, without a doubt. It, it, it is. I feel like people slightly older can point to, you know, PB Cates in... in uh, <laughs> Past time. That's like right. the thing. But for us, it's Batman 89. So that's like what started moving me into DC fandom, right? So so I was living in Saudi Arabia at the time, and a friend gave me an issue of Superman Monthly, which was the UK reprint of post-crisis Superman. I, I got to tell you real quickly, I'm going to interrupt your story, but yeah. one of the guys that listens to this show, Martin Gray, was an editor on that book. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. Well, well there you go. He, he may be partly responsible for, for everything I'm about to spew. So It's all your fault, Martin. It, it's... <laughs> <laughs> So, so the I don't remember uh, what issue of of Superman Monthly it was, but it was it, it reprinted the issue of Adventures of Superman where uh, Jerry White is kidnapped, and I don't I'm Michael Bailey would probably remember the the issue number. But, <laughs> he's, already, he's already writing it in the comments. Yeah, exactly. But this book would also reprint Justice League International, and at the time it was just Justice League, right? So it was that early in the run. So it was it reprinted the second half of issue three of of Justice League, mm. and my only concept of the Justice League before this was, you know, the, the big guns, right? Yeah. And, and this was very much not that. It was Guy Gardner I'd never heard of before. Or no, I'd heard of him, but I'd never seen him in action. I knew of Blue Beetle. I knew of Booster Gold. But it, this was really my first time reading uh, these characters interacting this way. And it was funny. And, you know, Justice League number three, that's the one with the, where are they from? What, what planet are they from? You know what I'm talking about. Oh, the, the, uh, the, the Avengers animal. I'm blanking totally on this. Yeah. Uh, well, it's where Silver Sorceress and, and uh, One Gina and Blue, Jay. and Blue Jay. Yeah. So I so I read this and it's like funny, but it's like serious. And you have that amazing Kevin McGuire artwork. And I, I just never seen anything like that. And so you talk about setting your compass, right? That set my compass for the Justice League. And mm-hmm. so from then, uh, you know, I remember shortly thereafter for winter vacation, like within months, I my family visited Pakistan for winter break and they had a whole bunch of comics there. And so I got a hold of the... I don't remember the issue number, but it's it's with Lord Manga on the cover, you know, and he's like, you know, for the low, low price, you can get whatever. Um, right. <laughs> uh, I forget. Again, I forget the issue number. But it's like the teens. Right? I think it's like yeah, it's, it's like 14, 15, somewhere in that range, I think. Oh, geez. Now I'm going to get in trouble from people. They're like, no, that's not it. <laughs> but you know the issue I'm talking about. Absolutely. Right? right. And then I got issue eight, you know, when they move into the embassy. I was like, this is just funny and it's serious and it just, it, it hit all those bases. So for me, that area the fact that by the time I moved back to the States, which was summer of 92, that era was over and I had no idea. You know what mm. I mean? So I didn't, it like, you know, you, when you're young enough where you're just like, oh, well, this is how it is and this is how it's going to be forever. And, right. And it, you know, by then Dan Jurgen was doing it and that was right around when Doomsday happened. So I had no idea that Giffen and Mateus, they had already left. And, but in the years later, that became something cool to me where I was like, oh, here's this thing. It's this great run. You know, it's like 60 issues of this plus whatever. Europe did however many and the annuals and stuff. It's like, it's, it's this great thing. And, and so when I started binding comic books, that was within the first couple batches of books. That was one of the first things that I did because I'm like, I want this preserved because it's amazing. And so now, you know, they have the omnibuses and everything and it's nice. It's nice, but it's also like, man, I, I, I get to say like, well, I was on board when this was like, more, when it was like indie. That's the way I look at it. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it also went through an interesting cycle where, you know, people loved the book at this point. Like we're, we're covering, right? Right now, the book 
was huge. I mean, they had yeah. the main book. They had a spinoff. They they were getting another spinoff with the quarterly book coming up. It was selling like hotcakes. And then you could even count like Mr. Miracle and Dr. Fate as, as, as pseudo spinoffs and things like that. But then, as you said, like when the Morrison era comes along, everyone seemed to turn on the Justice League International era. It's like, ooh, yeah. the, no one liked it anymore. So you're right. It became indie. It became underground. It became retro or whatever you want to mm. say because people didn't like it anymore. So, yeah, you were, you were the torchbearer, sir. You were there when no one else was. So you should be proud of yourself. <laughs> you know what's funny is is that was a time. So we're talking mid to late 90s when like like now when I want back issues, I'm like, let me log into LoneStarComics.com, send, and then five days later, here it is, right? Back then, <laughs> you had to work to find these back issues. Yes. And and you'd be driving from comic shop to comic shop like Indiana Jones with like a little airplane, map line, you know? Yes. Uh, <laughs> You had to work for it, you know? That, that, that we were saying on another show not too long ago that kids today, that kids today, they'll, they'll never understand the joy of the hunt, of looking for that back issue, you know? That right. Going through the 50 cent bins, looking, you know, going store to store all over town. And then, like, use, you use Lone Star Comics for me. It was Mile High Comics. You know, it's what you know, that's your, like, last resort. You're like, oh, I have to pay shipping <laughs> now. You know, whereas it's more fun to come across it, you know? Like, oh, my gosh, I've been looking for this Justice League Europe back issue or whatever. So, yeah. So true. <laughs> Nowadays, they just fire up their tablet and go to DC Unlimited or whatever, and there it is. Yep. <laughs> Spoil little brats. Get off my lawn. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Well, we should probably get into the issue. So, folks, uh, if you don't have a copy of this comic handy, and shame on you if you don't, and I really mean that, you can go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. We'll have an image gallery where we show some of the panels from this issue. But if you want to find a copy yourself, you do. it is a little tricky, actually, because you have to either buy the back issue in physical floppy form or by the collected edition you can get this physical and digital justice league uh international volume six because right now you cannot get this standalone issue number 35 digitally on comiXology you can't get it through dc the universe app any of it it's very strange there's a short window here that's just not available digitally unless you get the collections so uh get out there and buy it people all right, folks, we are talking about Justice League America number 35 from DC Comics, cover dated February 1990, was on the shelves December 12th, 1989. Cover price $1, four shiny quarters, and it's a cover by Adam Hughes. Zachy, would you mind doing the honors describing the cover? Well, we got uh, a lot of water. <laughs> it's, uh, so, so this is an Adam Hughes cover. It's, uh, we got Huntress and Oberon and Maxwell Lord and ice floating on a little piece of ice out there in the middle of the ocean. It's quite looks quite lonely. Yeah. I mean, the way he's composed the image, it's so powerful because, yeah, they're very far away from the camera lens and you just see open water for miles and miles and miles. So it really does a fantastic job of being so stark and so simple but so effective and it, isolated is the word that comes to mind for me it just makes you feel isolated so effective and it, it's probably uh, one of the few Adam Hughes covers that doesn't have a bunch of cheesecake. So look at that. That's yeah, like the one directly before it. Yeah, exactly. And I got to say now, I'm looking at this. I, I have both the physical copy and the digital copy here in front of me. And the colors, uh, and I, I'm always a big proponent of digital, but the colors are so striking. The blue is so rich. There's only a little bit of a gradient going towards the bottom, but it's, it's almost stark one color. There's a, a reflection of the sun with the orange background behind it. It's just stunning and powerful. And I, another fantastic cover from Adam Hughes. 
What a great artist he is. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And to think, he was so young and so new to comics at this point. I mean, he had done uh, a year or two's worth of work, and then bam, on this book, and just instant celebrity. Ugh. And we're, we're going to talk more about that on the back end, because I'm going to pose a question to you about him, specifically. So, here we go. Folks, Inside, the plot is by Keith Giffen. Dialogue is by J.M.D. Mateus. Pencilers, Adam Hughes. Inkers, hold on to your hat. There's three of them. Art Nichols, Jose Marzan, and Joe Rubenstein. Letter is Bob LePan. Colors is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And editor is Andy Helfer. Now, the issue itself is called Lifeboat. The issue opens somewhere in the South Pacific, and Maxwell Lord is shocked that he's teleported into a teleport tube at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, the tube opens, and he's ejected from the tube and rockets to the surface of the ocean to discover he is adrift in the middle of the Pacific with no land in sight. He's soon joined by Oberon and the Huntress as they all float looking around trying to figure out where the island of Kui 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 went. They realize that their teammate, Ice, is missing. Uh, she's trapped at the bottom of the ocean still and entangled by a man war. She's rescued, thankfully, by the Huntress, but not before being stung several times and horribly wounded. Now, back at the embassy, Scott Free is chatting with Guy Gardner about his upcoming Mr. Miracle World promotional tour. They hear a noise in the alley, they go to investigate, and they come across a homeless man who's sorting through the trash. Guy mentions this is his third time catching this guy. So Guy chases him off, and later on we discover that the homeless man is actually someone in disguise. And a little bit of foreshadowing here, we see some yellow-eyed creature lurking in a trash can outside the JLI embassy. What could that be? Mm. Now, mm. all right, we go back to the Pacific where we check in with Maxwell Lord, Huntress, Oberon, and Ice. They are still adrift, but now Ice has managed to create a circle of ice for them to float on like a raft before she has pretty much fallen unconscious from her wounds. They discover that their JLI communicators are waterlogged and are of no use, and now they are being circled by sharks. Back on Kui Kui Kui, we check in with Major Disaster, who's thinking about the situation and finds himself, surprisingly, thinking positively about Big Sur. And we also see Booster Gold and Blue Beetle struggling with many very, very angry guests of the resort who want their money back, who want to be rescued, who want their luggage, and all kinds of other issues. Finally, Beetle has enough and tells all of them to shut up. Nearby, Aquaman is talking with Kilowog about possible solutions to being rescued from the island that is now floating across the Pacific seemingly aimlessly. Aquaman suggests that there is an underwater volcano uh, that is dormant, but if they can make it active, they may be able to anchor the island to the ocean floor. At this point, Major Disaster reveals his identity to the heroes and says that he can do the job. Once again, Beetle is outraged as he's still mad at Major Disaster for cleaning out all of the money in the casino. Back on the iceberg, tensions are running high. Huntress vents her frustration, saying that she doesn't even understand why she joined the team in the first place. Max decides to clear his conscience and confess to Huntress that he used his mental abilities to coerce her into joining the team. Understandably, she tries to choke Max to death. In order to save himself, Max uses his mental powers on her again, causing her to forget her confession. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Meanwhile, in the waters beneath the island, Aquaman leads Major Disaster to an underwater volcano. Disaster uses his powers, causing the volcano to erupt, while Aquaman instructs whales to push the island above the erupting volcano. The volcano and lava secure the island to the ocean floor, stopping any further drifting. Then Aquaman hears agitated sharks in the distance and leaves to investigate. Back ashore, Major Disaster is hailed as a hero by the tourists and the natives. And Beetle finally gets his communicator working so they can call for help. And Booster makes a 
terrifyingly accurate prediction. Back at sea, major disaster and Big Sur's casino winnings from the last issue float around the iceberg while Max frantically grabs the cash. Aquaman begrudgingly rescues the heroes on the iceberg, taking them to Kui Kui Kui, arriving the same time as Martian Manhunter and Guy Gardner. Guy immediately flies ice to a mainland hospital and she's now recovering nicely. Back in the New York Embassy, Max tells Booster and Beetle their punishment. They are the new Embassy maids and their first assignment is to clean <gasps> Guy Gardner's room. Dun dun dun. Alright. Then we get a bit of a gag at the end. It says, be here next month as we present something even more ridiculous. The return of Nort. Don't say we didn't warn you. Oh goodness. There we go. So, Zachy, what did you think of the issue? You know, I feel like at least for me, when I when I look at my personal chronology of JLI, this storyline is sort of like the last hurrah of th- this version at its goofiest. Okay. You know, because after this, things get a little more serious. We have the, um, you know, the Despero thing and then obviously breakdowns. So to me, when I think of the, the JLI, this was peak silly. And so it's a, that when, when we talked about this like forever ago about oh, what storyline to talk about, I, that's I was like, you know, cooey, cooey, cooey. That's the one. Because to <laughs> me, that, that's like a little stick pin in time if you're mapping the arc of this version. I don't think it was ever as perfectly put together like this. You know, like, well, you know, the, the original definition of jump the shark wasn't, oh, this is where it started to suck. It was, it'll never be as good as this. And to me, right. that's, what, that's right. what this is. And, and, and there's no denying, this is a golden era for the book. I mean, between America and Europe and the, again, the other spinoffs and just the storytelling, everything's clicking. Everything's clicking yeah. at this point. Now, I, I, I hope to discover more love as I go further along. I, I also have some different memories of, of the eras and I do remember this is absolutely a high point. Uh, I've been surprised though on a lot of issues that in my memory weren't as great as I thought, but when you spend more time breaking them down, I found a lot of real good gems. So I'm hopeful there's a lot of gems coming still down the road. But this really is an astonishing piece of work that these guys are putting out, knowing that it was just, for them, they loved it, but it was a month-to-month grind. It was their job, you know? And they managed to make it exceptional. Now here's where I put a question to you. And I, I don't know that I even know the answer to this, but of the whole entire JLI era, so we're talking Just League America, Just League International, all of it, who is the best artist on the book? And maybe that's not fair. You know, maybe best is too hard to quantify. Who's your favorite JLI artist? Are, are we talking Kevin McGuire? Are we talking Ty Templeton? Bart Sears? Mm-hmm. Adam Hughes? It's it's a tough question to answer. It is an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really is. Uh, I But I have to give it to Kevin McGuire because he's, he set the tone, mm-hmm. right? And, and even Adam Hughes, who is a very very close second, he's following McGuire's lead. There's no denying that. For me, I... And I might be just too wrapped up in the moment of this is the era that I'm reading right now, you know? I feel like I might have to give it to Hughes. Now, there's, again, wow. no denying that Kevin McGuire set the tone. It's sort of like Doctor Who. I don't know if you're a fan of Doctor Who. I'm a big fan of Doctor Who. You know, all respect to William Harnell. He he started the thing, right? He He's the godfather. He kicked it all off. Everybody is taking his lead from him. But he's not my favorite. So right. so it's it's kind of hard to, uh, for me, I, I'm just so enamored with everything that Hughes is doing. Because Kevin McGuire was probably the best at doing facial expressions of anybody at that time. Yeah, and I then along comes Hughes, and he's got the 
facial expressions too. And he's got yeah. the body, and he's got the line work, and he's got you know everything. It, and uh, it's a uh, <laughs> I'm interested to hear what you guys think. So leave leave some thoughts in the comments. Again, I don't think you can quant- we can quantify who's best. That's probably not fair. But quantify who's your favorite is. I'd love to hear that. And you know maybe it's Chris Wozniak who came later. I don't know. I just rattle off the sort of the big celebrity names. But uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more from people on that. So a, a question, and, and, and this is a speculation, really. It's not really so much a question, but one of the things that jumped out at me is this issue. We got three inkers. You know, that's usually a, a big, big flashing red light for the issue was running late. I mean, unless I, unless you, you have a different opinion on that one, that's how what I always think of. Uh, that was my my impression as well, especially knowing that Adam Hughes is is famously fastidious. It, I can easily see a scenario where he was just bumping up against the dreaded deadline doom, and they needed to get it to as many hands as possible to get it out the door. Yeah, and, and I think maybe part of it is too like the amazing backgrounds. He he probably spent so much time on so much. Of the, I mean, if you look at the underwater scenes, they're so intricate. There's some great perspectives and flowing hair. There's so much work that went into it. It could be that it just the deadline caught up with him. It's quite possible because his art in this is breathtaking. I mean, this is some peak Adam Hughes work. It's it's unbelievably gorgeous. Speaking of gorgeous, I do have to say uh, the Huntress so sexy, and I, and I love that he draws her strong as well because she has a different physique than all like the bikinied women from the last issue. He actually draws her <laughs> as physically strong, which I absolutely think is brilliant. And, and for all those of you who are sort of outraged that me mentioning she's sexy, come on, it's the irredeemable shag. It's right there in the name. You guys knew what you're getting when I started the show. I, I do love also when <laughs> when Mr. Miracle's chatting with Guy Gardner. If, if you notice, it's it's not Mr. Miracle. It's it's Scott Free. You know, he's in his plain clothes, and they did a very good job sort of replicating the types of outfits that Joe Phillips would draw him in over in the Mr. Miracle book. Because here he's wearing like a very 1980s sweater. This looks like something mm-hmm. he stole from Theo Huxtable's closet over on the Cosby <laughs> Show, which yeah. I, I absolutely adore. So one of the things I love about this issue is specifically the contrast between this issue and the last one. I mean, this is sort of the magic of Giffen and DiMatteis. His last issue was wildly hilarious. It was jokes the whole way through, goofy situations, absolute hijinks, you know, Beetle and Booster, backdoor pilot. It was hilarious. This issue, it's actually got a really scary prospect of dying floating in the ocean. And, and there are definitely some funny bits. I mean, it's a funny comic, but there's not a lot of really explosive wahaha moments. So for me, there is a contrast between the two issues that I think is very worthwhile, and it makes it kind of brings a little more depth to the series. I, I love that when they when they give you the funny stuff and they contrast it with something else. And I don't know how many more times I can work the word contrast into those sentences. <laughs> It's okay. You're making uh, for a good contrast. Uh, it's, <laughs> it, it's, I, I totally agree. I think people sort of broad brush this run as, oh, it's the funny Justice League, right? And and it is. But what, what Giffen and Mateus knew sort of just instinctively was how to just walk that razor's edge, right? It never tips over into... Uh, a place where we never take we, where we don't take the stakes seriously. Well, we do have a Nord issue coming up. Oh, well, too short. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but but you know you know before we got on you and I we were talking about Mash right mm-hmm. and and that was Mash at its best right we laughed at the hijinks. But like when it came down to it, we worried about whether people would uh, or wouldn't make it out of the OR. Yeah, very true. And, and so, you know, that's what JLI was at its best. It was doing a mash thing. And, you know, I guess we could make a Booster and Beetle or the, you know, Trapper and Hawkeye uh, of this mix. You know, you get to pick who's who. So I guess that leaves us with Guy Gardner as the Frank Burns, which... It which, makes it. It fits. <laughs> and oh, oh, Winchester is Martian Manhunter because of the pilot. That works out. Literally. He literally <laughs> is Martian Manhunter. <laughs> 
Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's still yeah, any female character in the team's the hot lips of that moment. So yeah, it all works. It all tracks. Well, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's uh, we we need to see a mashup of that, folks. Uh, we've seen Max mashups. Is, Max is Colonel Potter. Come on. Oh my gosh, I totally see it. Oh man, this is fantastic. <laughs> Would that make Oberon Henry Blake? I'm not so sure, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's radar, dude. Oh uh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. That's perfect. <laughs> All right, some of you guys are artists. I want to see some mashup artwork coming on soon. <laughs> um, oh gosh, what else? So looking through the issue, you know, in addition to telling this this cooey 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 arc, which is great and wonderful, and then the, the fear of being lost at sea, the guys were layering in the B and C plots already. I mean, I, there's mm-hmm. a lot of foreshadowing in this issue. You've got Mister Miracle and Guy Gardner chatting about the upcoming world tour. Well, what that is, that's pimping the Justice League International special featuring Mister Miracle, which is about to come out the next month. You also get the foreshadowing of the homeless person who's rummaging through the trash, and you, you discover, no, no, that's some guy with a fake beard. Uh-oh, what's he up to? Well, we will find out in a couple of issues. And you get this yellow-eyed beast in the trash can. So uh, hopefully all of you know what that is. Um, oh, gosh. I, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that one. And we even get the beginning of a redemptive arc for a major disaster, which I didn't even think about until I started doing the recap for this thing, that that was even layered in there because Justice League Antarctica is not too far away. Yeah, just a couple issues, yeah. So really setting this stuff up. Impressive, because a lot of times, you know, if you talk to Keith Giffen now, he just says they were trying to get through the month. He's like, hey, I, I don't know where the ideas came from. I was just trying to get a book out. That was my job. Uh, but clearly, there was a lot more going on behind the scenes here with layering all these things in for the future. And I think it's great. Yeah. I, I, I think it speaks to the way comic books were written then, where it wasn't, you know, the notion of writing for the trade wasn't a thing. Yeah. So it was really about just let's kick the can down the road so that we're, we're setting stuff up and we'll figure it out as we go. But it's not about, oh, we got to wrap this thing up in six issues. It's let's just set stuff up that, that'll give us something to do when we run out of what we're doing right now. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. You know, there's a fantastic book, folks. If you haven't read it, uh, it's a DC book about writing comics written by Denny O'Neill. And uh, if, you, if you've never seen it, find a copy of it, pick it up. It is excellent the way he lays out exactly how you just described. It doesn't talk about the writing for the trade. It talks about the A plot, the B plot, the C plot. You layer it in there. You're building towards another story. All, you know, you're telling your A plot, your C plot is going to come in in an issue or two. It, all, it lays all that out and it makes makes those comics of that era make a lot more sense. Like, oh, I see what was going on here behind the scenes. Now that's interesting. And it made for at least uh, us old folks uh, a very enjoyable era of comics that we still love today. Very true. So uh, this network, the Fire and Water Podcast Network, was founded on the love of Aquaman and Firestorm. So I have to talk about Aquaman for just a moment or two. Not a lot because it'll just uh, inflate Rob's ego and I don't want to do that. But I do love uh, the constant joke about the Finney Friends on how Aquaman refers to the Finney Friends and, and Major Disasters are like, are you serious with that? You know, it's, it, it, it works well. And then uh, at the end, Max starts to offer Aquaman membership in the league. And he's like, don't even mention it. He doesn't want to hear it. He just completely storms off. He makes a great comment about Hawkman was right about this <laughs> incarnation of the league, which is hilarious. And, and I love how even the original JLA members are completely dismissive of the current JLI. And yet we know as the readers that this era and maybe not, I don't know, I can't verify that the exact sales numbers were high enough, but it was certainly high enough to have spinoffs and such where the original era didn't. So that's a that's a feather in the JLI's cap, I gotta say. That is true. And just a couple of one-off comments here and there. Just, uh, I really like Guy Gardner stepping up to the plate and saving ice. That was really ni- a nice touch. Kind of helps explain why maybe she doesn't think he's a completely despicable jerk after the date issue, because Lord knows she should. And then uh, the, the penalty for Beetle and Booster for this whole scheme, robbing the JLI, you know, you think 
they should go to jail, right? But instead, they're just scrubbing toilets? I mean, it makes for a funny gag, but like, I have a hard time processing that as a reader of this book going, wait, what? Pushing the, the boundaries of uh, reasonableness, I think. Mm-hmm. But it may play into something that we're going to talk about now, which is two things about Maxwell Lord specifically. Because remember, he's the one who dished out the punishment. And if we jump forward past the year 2005, in an era that I'm going to pretend didn't actually happen, but it did, <laughs> where Max, unfortunately, uh, we find out he's supposedly evil and supposedly he's been evil for a very long time. He tells the readers that he kept Beetle and Booster around to continue to make the JLI ineffectual. So that actually works as a retcon for why he didn't prosecute. It works as a retcon for why he just made them clean toilets and things like that. Also pointing to those uh, to that, his supposed turn into evilness, which again, none of us are happy with, but it's there. We have to, you know, I, I look at the elephant in the room. Dude, what he does to Huntress in this issue, holy crap. I, 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 why don't you tell us your take on what he does to, what he did to Huntress before and what he does to her here? So he, he uses his power. She's choking the life out of him and he, yeah. he, he essentially gets her to forget what he confessed to her. Oh, horrible. Absolutely horrible. Yeah, that's and it's funny because when you think about it, I mean, that's isn't that like what identity crisis was like all about? Like, yeah. with, right? <laughs> exactly right. Uh, and but it's weird, you know, because I'm like a Max Lord booster, right? Which I guess uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> uh, but I guess I'm in friendly company, you know. Like right. it always irked me what sort of what Dan DiDio spearheaded as far as what happened to Max. And it's funny because this is like I'm like if I had like one thing I could do as like a creative one creative decision, it would be that it would t- be to undo and re redeem Maxwell Lord because he had in fact been redeemed, which was what led to him leading the Justice League. Right. right. And given that he was, in essence, a redeemed character, this right here in this issue is as close as we get to, like, the the evil guy he used to be. And I almost wonder, looking forward, if this particular issue was on the radar of, say, Dan DiDio or Jeff Johns or whoever made those decisions, because you see him do this, you know, he admits to doing something absolutely unforgivable to Huntress, and then does it again, which, by the way, Oberon's now complicit in this because Oberon knows he did it. He acknowledges, yeah. oh, Max, why'd you do that? So Oberon's now um, also guilty. But so he does that horrible, horrible thing. And then we got to get to the next point, which is in the issue, when they're floating in the ocean, we're going to survive so I can kill Beetle and Booster. And then later, Booster says, I can't wait to get home and have Max put a bullet through my head. Oh my yeah. gosh! You know, I realize <laughs> it's just a publishing coincidence, whatever, for a comic that comes 15 years later, but the irony of having a guy from the future make a joke about getting shot through the head. Now, it was Beetle who got shot through the head, not Booster. But it does make me wonder, well, if if Jeff Johns, who, who wrote that special, I guess it was a team that wrote that special, either way, if they were doing research on Max and trying to find, you know, retconned evidence of his evilness, this would be an issue to research because of what he did to Huntress. Could that mention of getting shot through the head, could that have been a trigger for Jeff? Man, I hope not. Because to me, that is such a, a complete misreading of the, you know, to me, that's like my cousin Vinny when it's like, uh, I shot the clerk, I shot the clerk, you know, and then the guy's like, and then he said, I shot the clerk, and he repeated, I shot the clerk. You know? <laughs> like, because okay. clearly, you know, I mean, they're talking about Max in with obvious affection. That's the relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to kill that guy. You know, it's like, well, you know, it's, it, they love each other. They're a family, right? So, it, it uh, dude, you know what's funny is I was like, you know, six months. That's how long you have to be. So I'm, I'm like, okay, it's been more than six months. <laughs> You're breaking your own rule here, buddy. I, I well, it's comics, so I take it. I said movies, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we can apply it to comics. That's fair. Okay. There are a lot of people still bitter about Crisis uh, going back still. I guess so. Oh, okay. Okay. In that case, I, I don't feel as bad. Then. So, all right. Overall, super fun issue. I got to ask you, though, with the stuff about Max and the Huntress and what he does to her. And, and I, now I have not been reading ahead, so I don't know if Max will eventually come clean to Huntress again. And please don't tell me in the comments. I want to find out. I, now, I've read it 30 years ago. I just don't remember. So I want to see if Max gets his come up here or something later on down the line. But with with what happened to Huntress being a bit of a, a, a sore spot there, what what did you think of the issue overall, though? Oh, it's great. Yeah, I mean, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, like the balance of the tones is what really stands out to me, especially on this revisit, because the storyline is hilarious. Like all the stuff in the previous issue where, you know, where, where Major Disaster is like, you know, just trying to find out where the casino is. Like, it's really funny. Right? Mm-hmm. And and within this one arc, three issues, you get these, the you know, you run the gamut of hilarity and then this genuine dread of like oh what's going to happen here you, you know aquaman who is uh, unfortunately the sort of the, the the quintessential joke character is treated seriously here yeah very much so right uh, uh in fact you know my recollection is that reading this uh, because i read this before the peter david but it was the first time where i was like man aquaman's like kind of a badass you know <laughs> or something Keith Given had just written him in the Legend of Aquaman special and also that That's first right. uh, miniseries. The miniseries, um, Kurt Swan, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. What's funny is I was reading this last night with my daughter next to me. She's three, and she's like, "Who's that?" Uh, pointing to Aquaman. I was like, "That's Aquaman." So like, that's not Aquaman because she only knows Jason Momoa. Oh! <laughs> you got some education to do, sir. You better get on the stick here. And so she's like, "Where's his beard?" You know. <laughs> I, I am proud to say my 14-year-old daughter can point to every one of my JLI action figures and pretty much name who all they are. She might get a couple of the names mixed up, but she, she gets pretty darn close, so I'm, I'm proud of that. You've done your job. You've done your job. <laughs> so uh, before we close out the issue, I do need to mention, in the letters page, there's uh, you know they, they would always print letters, but then they'd sort of do that giant montage of like quick, fu- quick fire answers to different letters. There is a shout-out to one of the friends of our show. No kidding. Roy Cleary, fellow Firestorm fan and friend of the Firewater Podcast Network, is mentioned in the issue. It says, Roy... Roy Shoulders Cleary, I'm going to start calling him that, Roy Shoulders Cleary from <laughs> Warner Robins, Georgia, wants to know, quote, if Adam Hughes is locked up in chains, how does he pencil? Uh, and then the editor <laughs> responded, the chains are on his ankles. We don't think he draws with his feet. Right, Adam? So uh, <laughs> kind of a cute bit there, but always nice to see one of our friends getting a shout out in a comic 30 years ago. So that's awesome. that's awesome. Great to hear from you from the past there, Roy. Now, folks. Shoulders. <laughs> right. Thank you. Shoulders. Now, folks, we are going to get to the most contested part of the show. We are going going to do the Quahaha Award. This is where we are going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Zachy will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded with a coveted Bwahaha Award. Zachy, you're the guest. So what is your nomination for the Bwahaha Award? So uh, my nomination would be the panel we were just discussing, where Beetle and Booster are talking about what punishment will await them from Max. And and I couch that as, like, if you can picture that gif of Kristen Bell, where she starts laughing and then cries. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay okay uh because i i mean i re- i remember reading that you know originally and i just thought it was funny and then you read it now and you're like <laughs> oh <laughs> 
I think that's fair. Um, I will tell you my selection, and then we'll come back to decide which one's going to win. But I, I think the retroactive funniness of the panel or, or shock of the panel is certainly worthwhile discussing. Mine was it did involve Beetle and Booster. It was when a major disaster first makes himself known. Oh, that's another good moment. He yep. says, you know, he's there and he could help fix the problem. And Beetle just loses his mind. <laughs> Beetle Where's is my money? Exactly. He's, gonna be, he's out. He wants his money. And yet we all know that the island's adrift. They might all die. There's all these problems. And Beetle doesn't care. He still wants his money, which isn't even his money. He stole it. And Booster's actually holding him back while Beetle's calling him a bum. I'll kill you. All this stuff. So I found that pretty funny in sort of a traditional sense. However, I am willing, without even any debate, willing to give it to you. Because that one panel is, is funny and shocking and terrifying and everything you can imagine. A whole gamut of emotions just happens right there. All five stages of grief in one panel. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think we have to give it to that panel. Well, nice. <laughs> you're a gracious winner, <laughs> sir. All right. Well, congratulations to uh, Beetle and Booster and Maxwell Lord's Gun, I guess. Uh, you have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. You, please wear it with pride. I love it. Thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> now, Zachy, I need to ask a favor. Would you yeah. mind checking behind Booster and Beetle as they clean up the embassy? I can't trust those guys to do a good job cleaning. And, and I'm not asking you to clean behind them or anything. Uh, feel free to give them a kick in the pants if they fail to scrub the toilets properly. I just need someone to keep an eye on them while I go take care of something. Sounds good. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Now, don't worry. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 11th issue of Justice League Europe. It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Greetings, internerds. It is I, Mephisto. For the past two Halloweens, a callow cadre of casters has confounded my plans. First, they survived my Mephisto versus miniseries. Then, they navigated the perambulations of Dream Country. But this time, they stand no chance. I've trapped them within my hotel, the Inferno. And if Las Vegas isn't torture enough, the only entertainment they have is a variety of horror comics. Their only chance to escape is to find joy and positivity in these tales of terror. <laughs> uh, Mephisto, why are you still doing this? What do you mean? You know the gang keeps this crossover going because it's fun, and they like podcasting together. They do it even without your shenanigans. No, that cannot be! My will is all! You are but playthings in my merciless machinations! Yeah, sure, but can you go to the living room and watch some streaming while I finish the promo? <laughs> Impudent geek! Mephisto vs. The Podcasters 3, a crossover podcast event featuring the Married with Comics podcast, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast, The Secret Wars and Beyond podcast, and Jeff and Rick present Unpacking the Power of Power Pack. Find it where all fine podcasts are casting. Why is Mandalorian Season 2 not out yet? Curse that House of Mouse! He's been here since the stay-at-home order started. I really don't think that applied to immortal entities, but he's all, Never can be too careful. 
And if he finishes my Cheetos one more time. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 11. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode who's been a comic collector since 1989 about the time we're at in the JLI coverage right now and uh, that collecting was fueled by his love of the JLI and Batman and this man even brags about buying the 1999 Keith Given comic Vexed right off the shelves Go figure, man. Okay. You be you, man. So, uh, But the good news is our co-host is another international guest. By now you get it, right? Justice League International. It's almost like I planned this or something. So, with this story set in Paris, France, and Akron, Ohio, of course our guest hails from our uh, Irish embassy? Well, I'm getting closer. At least this one's from Europe. Um, and if we're talking about the Irish Embassy, then you know where this is going, folks. This guest is legendary in the feedback section of the JLI podcast and is making his debut on the show right now. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Jimmy McGlinchey. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Jimmy. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Well, I'm not doing too great now, Shag, because to be quite honest, you know, like when you said you were coming over to the Europe to, to talk, I assumed that it was going to be to the Irish Embassy. And I had Jack O'Lantern going out and he was cooking and he was making his scones and he has got tea made and everything like that and then you tell me I have to transport over to the Paris Embassy oh my gosh Jack O'Lantern is peed off let me tell you well you know what he has a bad choice in bosses anyway so I'm not going to be too worried about who he who he wants to get mad at and also I'm going to make you go to Akron Ohio no uh, that's even worse Where? Is there an Akron, Ohio? Oh, my God. There absolutely is. <laughs> and apparently that's where Stag Industries uh, has their headquarters, as we'll find out this episode. Now, interesting thing, folks. J- I, Jimmy got invited to be on this show four years ago, all right? And this came from his amazing feedback. In every episode, he leaves the most wonderful feedback. He always leans into the jokes. I love it. He plays along with my corny ideas, and he has corny ideas of his own. <laughs> and I absolutely adore it. And he got invited on the show four years ago. And when I invited invited him. Jimmy, this was going to be your first podcast, right? This was going to be my very first podcast. And well, it was going to be my very first podcast. But then Ryan Daly came and he swooped down and he he pitched me for a couple of his shows on Midnight Podcasting Hour. So what you're saying is you you, you couldn't wait for me. So I I, appreciate that. Yeah, I couldn't wait for you, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sensing a reoccurring habit here. I feel like a talent scout who finds like this amazing talent, you know, uh, Tim Price, Jared Albrecht, the Yard Sellers, yourself. Jimmy McGlinchey, I, I, I find all you guys. I invite you to be on a show. It's going to be your first podcast. And then you just don't wait for me. You go off and become podcast celebrities on your own before you even get here. So I'm sorry you couldn't wait four years, Jimmy. I Jeez. know. I know. I think I think it's a bit like Andy Helfer, you know, like going down and swooping Kevin McGuire from uh, Marvel and then taking him to become the superstar artist he became in the JLI. <laughs> 
That's a very good analogy. I like that. <laughs> Damn you, helper! <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, Jimmy, you know, in, in the opening there, we, we teased a little bit about you falling in love with comics all the way back in 1989. So I got to know, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the book and what made you fall in love with it? Well, I suppose just to give you a small bit of background, I was actually born in the United States. My parents had emigrated from Ireland and they met there and I was born there and everything like that. And I have, you know, like I have a vague memory that even though I can't remember, I have this sort of, I suppose, in the back of the head that I had this awareness of the of the American comics like Richie Rich and Archie and Casper the Friendly Ghost. Wow. So, so yeah, when we moved back to Ireland, I was about seven at the time, and I started collecting the sort of the UK comics, which was sort of like, I suppose, comedy anthologies with weird sounding titles like Beano and Dandy and Wizard and Chip and whoopee <laughs> all, all these unusual names that only Martin Gray would probably know I've heard of Beano that's that's the only one <laughs> that's the only one and so I suppose going on a bit and beyond that then I suppose when I started college around 88 89 there was a certain firm that came out that year what was it again oh Batman never heard of it small little independent film I, I, I'm surprised <laughs> anyone has heard of it and I, I and I suppose I, I was aware of Batman from the I suppose reruns of the 1960s TV series and I, I became aware of it I was in college at the time and I wasn't too sure in university in Cork where you could sort of get Batman comics but there was a British reprint of Batman comics that were coming out in the news agents and it was Batman anthologies and they were doing comics of let's say for example the old 70s comics I remember the first one I think I got was a story of uh, Professor Milo and Batman in the in the Arkham Asylum and then it started going up to more modern times with doing the Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle stories from mm. Detective of that time and of course they were only coming out once a month so you know like I, I suppose I was a big reader at the time and I just needed another fix and then as well as the Batman Monthly as there was a Superman Monthly came out and with the Superman Monthly there was a JLI backup in there absolutely right absolutely right and the JLI backup the very first story that I remember was I think it was the second half of the JL annual that they reprinted JL annual number one Germ mm. Warfare and then I knew who Batman was and then all these other characters they were just so unusual to me and then the next Superman Monthly that came out it started reprinting a story which I think you might have heard of it was the one punch storyline <laughs> never heard of it never heard of it <laughs> you know, and now you maybe use that darn sound effect i know you haven't heard of one punch that's amazing <laughs> hey enough i gotta do the editing on this thing you're gonna kill me here <laughs> so after that then i was sort of collecting these comics and then in university uh, in the student newspaper there was an advertisement for someone selling comics uh, one Saturday. So I went down to it and I was talking to the person who owned it and he sourced for me uh, Justice League, A New Beginning, the trade paperback. Oh, wow. And then he started then selling comics on a regular basis and I just started to sort of started to collect it. And then, of course, when I started collecting Justice League, I said, okay, I might as well buy the Batman comic and the Detective comics. Oh, there's a Justice League Europe comic now? Okay, I'll have to get that. Who's in Justice Sleep Europe. Oh, there's the flashes in there. I'll have to get the Flash comic. And then it <laughs> snowballed and it snowballed and it snowballed. So, right. so I suppose that was my origin into the Justice League International. Uh, I mean, it was just the humor. It was just so different and it was so vibrant. 
want and I just fell in love with it and I suppose in those early years as well then I was sort of catching up trying to get the I suppose the older comics that I didn't do and then I'm going to um, try to find these comics in various secondhand stores and everything like that and soon I think I managed to collect all the, the Justice Leagues that I missed out on prior to me collecting full time and as the rest as they say is history. So as somebody who was in Ireland at the time how did it feel with the Justice League Europe comic book on the shelves? I mean did it did it resonate with you more because it was Europe or was it more like dude this is like nothing like Europe or did it have any kind of extra meaning at all? It had a bit of extra meaning I think it, it was enjoyable to sort of see it and then obviously I know I joke about it in, in the comments that I make on, on various podcasts but I suppose having even someone who as, as it stands at the moment is an antagonist of, of the Justice League Jack O'Lantern being mm-hmm. from Ireland it was sort of like it was a nice thing to have and then obviously Paris you know like I suppose the only thing I sort of noticed initially from the Justice League Europe is oh wow the Eiffel Tower is in every shot in this <laughs> apparently you can see it from everywhere you can see it from everywhere <laughs> So it was great to have this sort of a Europe comic. And even though I suppose we're going to be talking about it, just the Europe comic that's sort of mostly a state side for the entirety of it. But it, it was great to sort of have that European influence in there. That's great. And, and also, by the way, this is two guests in a row, both Zaki in the first half of this episode, which you didn't hear, Jimmy, because you were in the green room and, and yourself now have both mentioned the British Superman monthly books. So Martin Gray has got to be feeling pretty chuffed right now, uh, feeling pretty good about himself that played a part in both of you guys falling in love with the Justice League. That's amazing. It's unbelievable. Like You, you see Martin Gray in the comments and then you realize that he was involved in editing those books. And you're just, wow. And it's, it's just it's just an amazing feeling. And I suppose it's, it's what you said before about the JLI community uh, through your podcast just bringing everyone together. It's just, it's just an amazing. Well, that's the goal, is to make us all one larger community. Well, we should probably get into this here. So let's talk about Justice League Europe number 11. From DC Comics, cover date of February 1990 on the shelves January 9th 1990 oh my gosh folks we have reached our first issue released in the 1990s officially oh wow we are here everyone get your pouches out uh, cover price was $1 for shiny quarters and the cover is penciled by Kevin McGuire and inked by Bart Sears uh, Jimmy you want to describe the cover Okay, the cover is, uh, I think if you remember Justice League number five, where you had Guy Gardner being held back by uh, Captain Marvel and John Jones, you actually have a similar, a very similar uh, composition here where Animal Man and Rocket Red are holding up Guy Gardner, but but Guy Gardner isn't going towards the screen with teeth raging and and eyes of fury, he has actually been knocked out. He has stars going around his head and, <laughs> and a bit of drool coming down from his lip. And, and, and both Animal Man and Dimitri are just trying to hold him up. <laughs> I love this cover. And, and it just has this issue, Guy Gardner versus Metamorpho. Guess who wins? <laughs> It is so cool that they got McGuire to come back. Uh, I mean, not come back because he never worked in Justice League Europe, but, you know, to work, come back to the Justice League in- franchise to do this cover. It is just an amazing cover. And I've, even just the way that, that their composition there, like Animal Man is in John Jones' position. And you can see with his teeth, his teeth are gritting in the same way that John was in Justice League number five. <laughs> it's just amazing. Well, and Rocket Red's doing the same as Captain Marvel. He's even got, he's not only holding the arm, he's also got his hand on the shoulder, exactly the same that Captain Marvel did. I mean, he, I mean, obviously Kevin drew it and he could have had access to the original cover, but he just did a really great job recreating it with the funny twist of having Guy gotten his head handed to him, basically. Yeah. (laughs) 
And, and just now, as we were starting this episode just moments ago, I just noticed something I've never noticed before. And it's stupid little things, but, you know, Guy's costume has lots of, like, straps and belts and stuff like that. I never noticed that the straps or belts on his gloves actually have come loose. One of them's dangling, and the other one's all loose and, like, coming unbuckled. Oh, wow. I, ne- I never noticed that before. He he got hit so hard, his gloves are coming off. Oh, wow. Metamorpho really gave him <laughs> gave him the business there. He sure did. <laughs> can, can I ask you something there, Shag? Um, sure. It's this first thing, I suppose, McGuire's done this, and... You you sort of think like with other Maguire ones like his famous Justice League number one where it has been homaged over and over again. So this is obviously the first homage of of this one. Have you ever seen it being done before again? Um, I've only ever seen it one time, and this would it would actually make this the second homage. Um, oh, the right. first one was on a Doom Patrol cover drawn by Eric Larson, where two of the Doom Patrol members were holding back. I believe it was Negative Woman, and it was very clearly uh, an homage to the Justice League cover. In fact, Eric Larson even talked about it on Twitter a couple times how he very specifically was homaging that cover. And that one came out before this one. So uh, you've got the Doom Patrol cover and then this one. And I don't think it's, at least to my knowledge, I did some Googling last night just to double check. I don't know that it's ever been homaged again, which is sort of interesting because it's a very iconic Maguire cover. It is. I think... After Justice League One, it gets that pose is very much Maguire, and you're just I'm just surprised that it has just that's never been done before again. Yeah, I, I would say Number Seven's another one that's also very iconic, where uh, they've gone international and you see all the flags and everything. That hasn't been uh, homaged either. So hmm. either way, it's a great cover, and uh, it's really cool getting Maguire back uh, to do this cover. So I think it's super fun. And Sears inking Maguire, that would what, what an unusual combination. It does work though. It you definitely see Maguire, but there's there's definitely the, I suppose, especially Animal Man and Rocket Red, they're very much sort of like Sears, you know, like Sears compositions as well. So Yeah, you can feel it. You can definitely feel it. You're right. All right, well, let's get inside. Plot and probably the breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by Bill Messner Lowe's. Penciler is Bart Sears. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And the editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is, t- is entitled Family Ties. You want to start us off, Jimmy? I've been waiting four years to do so. <laughs> Seriously, folks. He wrote this recap four years ago and sent it to me. So for those of you, anybody who's ever been a guest on the show, if you were doing the recap like the night before, dude, Jimmy showed you up hardcore. Four years that this guy worked in advance. I'm impressed. Okay. Thank you very much, Shag. Family Ties. Metamorpho is frustrated that he has a son, as revealed in Justice League Europe number five. He knows that his ex-father-in-law, Simon Stagg, will not let him ever see his son, but that will not stop Rex. Downstairs, Dimitri is talking to a distraught Animal Man, still in mourning over the death of his family, which took place in Animal Man number 19. But he feels that active duty in the JLE will take his mind off of the horrors of his personal life. Captain Atom doesn't know how to comfort Buddy, so keeps his head buried in the newspaper, which is headlined, Stag's Fuel to Save Millions. Metamorphos storms in and informs Captain Atom that he's taking a leave of absence to see his kid. As Rex storms off, Buddy and Dimitri offer to go after Rex. Captain Atom informs the New York Embassy of the situation as Rex is heading stateside. Atom and Oberon feel someone from the JLA team could act as backup. Someone who is discreet and diplomatic. Unfortunately, Guy Gardner overhears. Guy has a man crush on Simon Stagg, who he believes he has a lot in common with, and he enthusiastically offers his services. Meanwhile, at the Moscow Embassy, we witness the Soviet Embassy chief deny sanctuary to Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress, Heroes who have been detained with their powers neutralized by the Russian authorities since Justice League number three. The man who pleaded on their behalf relays the bad news to the two heroes and then secretly gives them a vial of serum that will return their powers just before he's taken away by Soviet guards for treason. 
At the headquarters of Stag Industries, Simon Stag is entertaining Dr. Will Magnus. It's revealed that the mysterious fuel supplied by Stag is actually produced by Metamorpho's son, and that Magnus has developed a robotic environment which allows the baby to continue to produce this fuel on a regular basis, using simple positive reinforcement. Their conversation is interrupted by Guy, who grabs a drink from Stag's hand and informs him that Metamorpho is on his way. Rex, Buddy and Dimitri arrive at Stag's house. Java, the evolved Neanderthal, and Sapphire's new husband opens the door. One punch. Later, Java is on the ground unconscious and Rex storms in. A tearful Sapphire meets Rex and asks why he hasn't visited the baby sooner. Sapphire agrees to take Rex to the baby, who is kept elsewhere. I'll take it from here. Sapphire brings the three JL ears into Stag's factory, where they look in horror at the nursery where robotic arms are feeding the baby in a crib. Sapphire, in tears, explains that the baby has similar powers to Metamorpho, except that instead of changing himself, he changes everything else into chemical elements. In fact, the doctor who delivered the baby was turned into mercury upon touching the baby. She explained how Stag contacted Dr. Will Magnus to develop a solution to enable the baby to be looked after mechanically until such time as the child can control his powers. Metamorpho realizes Stag's new energy glop comes from the baby. Sapphire says that her father needs to cover the costs of treatment. This enrages Rex, who yells at Sapphire and slams both Buddy and Dimitri when they try to restrain him. Rex smashes the window and goes in to see his son. Waiting in the nursery is Guy Gardner, who comments on the baby's looks. Rex gets majorly pissed and attacks Guy Gardner. A battle ensues, and Gardner has the upper hand until Metamorpho converts himself into gold, thus negating the ring's powers with yellow. After a long battle, Rex finally puts Guy out for the count. Rex muses that Guy could have won the battle if he'd used his brain instead of his fists. Gold is a pretty soft metal, and even Rex knew a few ways to overcome it. Rex goes to the crib and looks at the face of his son for the first time, a face that is made up of various colors. As he reflects on his son, a voice commands, Metamorpho, step away from that crib, now! Metamorpho turns and finds himself staring at six robotic figures, who command Metamorpho to surrender into their custody, or he will have to face the fury of, dun-dun-dun, the Metal Men. Next issue, Battle of the Elements. Oof, man, what a ride. This was great. Oh, that's was an amazing issue, and it, it was a real roller coaster there for Rex. And But I suppose starting off on the issue there, why did it take Rex so long to visit Sapphire? It was just in Europe number five where he, uh, he was told about the baby, and then he decided, next issue, oh, I need to learn French, so I need to go to French class. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I think the answer there is plot. But um, <laughs> I think so, yes. And, and then obviously, of course, the Teasdale imperative, the Teasdale yep. imperative <laughs> occurred. So, <laughs> so uh, and then uh, the issue with Power Girls. So, yeah, it did took, take a while for Rex to sort of visit Sapphire, but um, he got he got there in the end. That's true. That is true. I do find it interesting, too, that everyone's calling him Rex now, by the way, because, you know, when the series started, no one knew his name because he had amnesia. He finds out in issue five, his name is Rex. And now everyone's calling him Rex. And it sort of continues the trend we've seen in Justice League. Europe, where everyone's calling the members by their real names. Dimitri, Buddy, Kara, all that kind of stuff. The only exception still being Captain Adam, because he's a jerk. He's a jerk. He's very much a jerk. I suppose the splash page on page two, it really hits home. I think the first time that I read this, I had only read maybe the first five or six issues of Animal Man series, again, through Mm. the UK uh, reprints. So it was subsequent to this that I actually 
finally read Animal Man number 19, which is an absolute, you know, like it's a shocker ending where he just comes into the house and, the, and his wife and the two kids are just in the kitchen and the, and they're, they've got bullet holes in their, in their chests and everything like that. And it's just amazing. But it's just an interesting cr- chronology because of, that happened in Animal Man number 19, which took place the previous month. And then Animal Man number 20 came out the week before Justice League Europe number 11. And that's when the funeral took place for his family. And he had mentioned to John at that stage that he was going to take a leave of absence. So I got a funny feeling that this issue probably took place maybe prior to the funeral. Justice League Europe number 11 took place prior to the funeral so that he sort of said, oh, I need to sort of clear my head. And then once this issue and the next issue occurs, then the funeral takes place and he tells John then that he needs to leave absence. Yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, with with the way Grant Morrison works, uh, as we all know, and by that point, the series was already a hit, runaway hit, that I imagine Grant was going to do whatever he wanted to do and wasn't necessarily worried about what was happening in other offices. So the coordination was probably kind of loose. You know, they just said, hey, Animal Man's you know wife's going to die. You're going to need to pull him out of the league. And maybe they'd already plotted this issue and needed him. And so this page got added later. I actually speculated, because this is the only reference in the whole thing, that I actually speculated this page may have been added halfway through the process. You know, like uh, they write out this story, then they find out what happened to his family. And so they kind of work this in. I, I, again, it's all just speculation. I have no idea for sure. Yeah, it, it, I suppose it does make sense because I suppose if you took that page out there was there's not really that much references to I suppose to the family afterwards like it still just continues on thereafter yeah. so I think that that's that's probably a good a good call on that yeah because you think there would be some sort of indication later like when they're talking about Rex's son and maybe Buddy leaning into saying family so important you know something like that and or I understand why Metamorpho would go to any lengths you know whatever yeah I mean I was reading the Animal Man book at the time it was so powerful and sadly this is you know we're we're winding down here I, I haven't double checked but we're I know we're very close to Animal Man's final appearance in the Just League Europe which just makes me so sad if if they hadn't had to cater to Morrison's plot line there which we know gets turned over in five issues uh, he would have been great to stay around just like Europe. I love the character so much. He's, he's an excellent character. And I just love the sort of the relationship between himself and Dimitri. I think they're both, they both work well. Like I always felt, you know, like if you want to do a mini series with Adam Man and Dimitri, that, that would be, that would be great just to have a sort of a little, a sort of a, a buddy relationship, you know, like a sort of little mini series with those two. Yeah. But yeah, comparing Dimitri's concern to buddy with Captain Atom and he's just, he's got his head in the newspaper and he's just not looking up and he does not want to talk to buddy about, about what's, what's happened to his family. So, okay. Lots to unpack here. First uh, issue, with the, the idea of a Dimitri and Buddy a miniseries would have been awesome because uh, I can totally see because they're both family men so I can totally see it full of a bunch of dad jokes you know it would have been great I would it would have been so corny and, and by comparison of like a blue and a gold miniseries this could have been I don't know uh, the orange and red miniseries whatever but um, it would have been super fun so that's sad that we never got that opportunity as far again this page Captain Adam is the worst he sucks as a boss he sucks as a leader he can't say anything to Buddy and I'm now I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do something here and give him a pass because I'm going to lean back on my previous thought that maybe this page was added later because of the buddy's family death. Because, again, it's not referenced anywhere else here. So I'm thinking uh, this page was put together and then Bill Mester Loeb's has to come and script it and think, well, why didn't Captain Adams say anything to him? You know, oh, my gosh, he's just probably should have said something. So I'm wondering if all of this was sort of backed into it backwards. And so that's why Captain Adams such a, a useless, worthless boss. The only thing that I could sort of say to, to uh, excuse Captain Adam is that 
he is a person displaced in time from the 1960s. He's a military man. Maybe he's not able to emote like they would be able to do in sort of the 80s and 90s. Well, that, mm. that was one that was one excuse that I was going to give him. But then I was sort of thinking afterwards, well, in Justice League Europe number five, he was able to sort of comfort Rex after the whole Sapphire Stag uh, coming in then. So I think you're probably right that this was probably written after the event and that uh, he was just basically made to sort of sit there and just read his paper and say nothing. Right. And, and as a military man, especially back, you know, in, in the sixties, he may have seen, I don't, I don't recall specifically, he may have seen some action in war uh, and as a leader of people, he may have even had to convey messages to family and you know, condolences for losing soldiers. So I, I gotta think he's got some experience. Now I'm, I'm going to do one more thing here that adds some credence to this page being added later is I think there's actually two either, I don't know whether lettering errors or scripting errors. I think there's two words that are incorrectly attributed in this issue. Whoa, hold on a minute. So, all right, I, I had this whole thing. What you folks don't know is I just edited out a bunch of stuff because I found something I was going to talk about, and then I realized, okay, I'm, I'm going all over the place here, folks. What I'm trying to say is, in this issue, there are two moments that don't read right if you're reading the collected edition. There's a couple of words they screwed up in here, dude. I'm looking at the collected edition digitally along my comic right next to it, and they've actually changed words and word balloons. So when I was prepping for this episode, I was reading the digital version, and I'm like, a couple of these sentences don't make sense. And I was about to bring it up on the air. And then I look at the physical copy and the words are correct. The buddy has a word balloon where he says, uh, if I don't, I think I'll go insane. Well, in the digital, the newer, you know, corrected, I guess, version, it says, if I don't, I think I'll go inside. That What? That makes no sense. And then later on, Captain Adam is thinking, I, some, I hope something happens really soon to give Buddy the diversion he wants. Well, in the collected edition, it says, I hope that something happens real soon to give Buddy the division he wants. So someone, I, I cannot possibly imagine why, screwed up the words. I wonder if maybe the original art, that they scanned the original art and it had a misprint and got changed later. I, I don't know. But they're literally, they're words that are wrong and both are in the letterer's handwriting. I don't understand what's going on here. This is sort of a version of autocorrect, I wonder. <laughs> I, I, I handwrite, a handwritten version of autocorrect. I don't even know, man. That is so freaking weird. Okay. Anyway, I, it, you know, it could all lend credence again to the fact that this page was done later. Uh, was, you know, in a hurry or something like that. Either way. So what else you got? Sorry. I took us down a weird tangent there. That's okay. I suppose it's interesting seeing the return of Silver Sorceress and Blue Jay. And we haven't seen them since Justice League number three, which was back in April of '87. So they've been out of or out of sight for about three years now. So it's just amazing that uh, he, that Keith Giffen is actually coming back to this plot point that was was left hanging, I suppose, from Justice League number three. Yeah, and they say they actually say the name Blue Jay, and they mention the reference to the, to the, the nuclear warheads, but they don't say Silver Sorcerer's name, and they don't make a, like a footnote that says CJLE number three. None of that. And so, for someone like me who came into reading Justice League Europe first, because I read Justice League Europe before I read the main Justice League America book, I had never read the story of Blue Jay and Silver Sorceress coming to uh, uh, you know the attack on Russia and that issues. So I would have had no idea who these characters were. I guess at the time I just read it and kept going with it, thinking that it would explain it not realizing it was actually a reference to something that already happened. And, and that scene actually has, 
That's one of my favorite sort of dumb moments that just cracks me up. So the whole thing is, is translated from Russian. This guy is speaking Russian, right, at the embassy, and you know because it's in brackets, right? It's got the little open, you know, uh, greater than and less than symbol ahead to let you know that all this is translated. Now, when he's talking to Blue Jay and Silver Sorcerers, that's in English. But either way, he's walking up to their cell, and on this is on page six, and he's thinking to himself, and, and what he's thinking is just a series of ellipses, you know, the dot, 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 yeah. which usually means that, you know, he's, he's kind of blank thought. He's, he's, it's almost like a, a mental sigh, like uh, a dramatic pause kind of thing to show his frustration. But in here, they put brackets around the ellipses. So I guess it's a dramatic pause in Russian, which just <laughs> cracked me up that the ellipses got translated. I, I, it's pretty stupid, but it made me laugh. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. I, it's, it's, uh, that. That's actually a very good catch there. Also in the Soviet embassy, um, we should point out, there was a scene in, in, the, in the Soviet embassy where you see a woman with two children, and it, they're just in the background. There's a serpent color. They're not even colored. And they just have a line that says, we're here for the transfer. And then uh, the other lady says, walk this way. And who are those kids? I believe that they're going to be Dimitri's kids. They are, in fact, Dimitri's kids. So that's very exciting. So uh, hopefully, and again, I haven't peeked ahead other than to know that that's Dimitri's kids. So I can't wait to see how that plays out. So I suppose continuing on from there, then uh, we go to Akron, Ohio, which apparently is a real place. <laughs> I, I promise you it is. <laughs> <laughs> and we see uh, Simon Stagg speaking with uh, Dr. Magnus. I did a bit of research there. So the last time we saw Dr. Magnus was at the start of the Time Masters miniseries and also then at the start of the Crawling from the Wreckage story arc from Doom Patrol. So it's interesting that he's sort of being used as a sort of a general, I suppose, scientific person in, in these various stories. I like the fact that, yeah, that he doesn't, since the Metal Men don't have their own series, I love that they use him because I love the character. But I am kind of bothered by the fact that he's pretty much okay with Simon Stagg's, like, horrible, immoral actions. I mean, Stagg is really a disgusting human being in this thing. And Dr. Magnus is pretty much okay as long as he's making money. And that, that doesn't sit terribly well with me. Yeah, well, I suppose you, you, need, you need the money to get those response meters uh, in order. <laughs> <laughs> true that, true, true that. that. <laughs> And then, of course, you had Guy coming in and he's just grabbing the drink from uh, Simon Stagg and he's just saying, uh, yeah, I'm here to help you. That metamorphosed fellow won't do anything to you. Like, if you didn't know who Dr. Magnus was, his comment was about my team can be here to help you. You know, like, if you didn't know who he was, it's a nice little, it's a sort of a little mystery point. But if you did know who Magnus was, it's sort of a nice lead into to the final page. Yeah. Now, I got to say something about the Guy Gardner and Simon Sag stuff. So Stag is portrayed, and Oberon even talks about this earlier, that Stag, you know, is this really big capitalist business leader tycoon, and that he is, you know, if anyone crosses him, he'll sue them. I mean, it's definitely leaning into the 1980s corporate bad guy stereotype. It really, really is. And the fact that Guy is really into that, and Guy loves this, you know, it's all pro-capitalism, pro-Reagan 1980s era kind of stuff, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. I actually like Guy being wrapped up in him. Now, this wasn't portrayed during the Teasdale Imperative, but uh, I, I do like that Guy you know, considers himself a fan of Stag or sees something of himself in Stag. And it's interesting that Stag's sort of becoming a reoccurring nemesis for the Justice League Europe team. I mean, I get it with the connection with Metamorpho, but he's not exactly a European villain, you know? It's so interesting. Very interesting, yeah. And then uh, it, was, it was a great entrance for, I suppose, Rex to come in and Java opening the door, and then suddenly one punch... And bang, Shabba <laughs> is down on the ground. 
<laughs> if you could imagine that, you know, like in Justice League Europe number five, Java and Rex had a fairly, you know, like drop down battle. Just, I don't know whether it was Rex just got the jump on him and he just saw him and just says, bang, that's it. <laughs> I, I think at that point, you know, Rex was in, in issue number five, he was still sort of absorbing the whole thing with, with, with Sapphire and the wedding and or marriage and getting his memory back and everything. Here, he has had enough of this crap. He has been stewing on this for, uh, you know, however many issues it's been, six issues or whatever, and he has just had enough. And so, yeah, he, he lays them out, which is fantastic. And it does lead me to wonder, I wonder what ja- Java and Sapphire's married life is like. Because, you know, you get a moment where Java calls out to her and he says, you know, like, don't bother getting up, Sapphire, my love. Probably another one of them salesmen. Like, he's trying to be nice to her. And so I wonder what their married life is like. I mean, neither one of them are exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer. So it would be sort of interesting just to see that sort of relationship. Yeah. I, you can't imagine sort of like sitting down doing Sudoku or just uh, <laughs> reading, reading, the, reading the classics by the, by the fireplace. <laughs> right. <laughs> And then Sapphire obviously comes in and he, she decides, okay, I'm going to take Rex to the to where the baby is. But first of all, I need to change and I need to put on a new <laughs> new clothes and change my hairstyle and everything like that. That is too funny. And, and it leans into something that uh, I, I, when we covered Just League number 5 and Sapphire appeared, uh, the guest was Bob Fisher. And Bob noticed something. And he totally figured out that Sapphire is Lonnie Anderson, pretty much. I mean, he nailed it. And if you – from like WKRP to be specific – uh, that sort of character. And in a lot of ways, you can see that. I mean, the, the look, the hair, the figure, the the obsession on appearances and all that, it fits really, really well. Some of that's in the art and some of that's in the story. And I think it's a, it's a really nice correlation. I have no idea if you have any idea who Lonnie Anderson or WKRP is. Um. <laughs> I think I vaguely remember WKRP in Cincinnati. That was... There you go. Uh, yeah, yeah, there we go. We, 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 we get the American sitcoms over here. <laughs> Just so you know, Cincinnati, also a real town. <laughs> Oh, wow. I'm, I'm learning a lot of new things. <laughs> Both of them in Ohio. <laughs> so, and then we come to this great splash page by Bart Sears of the factory of the baby. And we have all these mechanical arms. And then you just have this juxtaposition of the kids' toys and the wallpaper against the sterility of the lab. I think it's just an amazing splash page there by Bart Sears. And it, it just reminds me of this sort of just with these kids' toys and everything. Do you remember the Batman Judge Dredd crossover, the first one, where they had Judge Death and Scarecrow had sprayed him with something he, he was feared? And it, what do he fears? And you had this image of Judge Death sort of cowering on the ground and all of these children's toys just sort of uh, crowded around him. I, I just get that vibe from, from, the, from the story, from, oh, or, wow. from this page. Wow. I uh, I don't speci- I know I read the issue. I don't specifically remember it. I want to say, was that Bisley or at least he did the cover? It, it was it. Simon Bisley. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, it has that vibe of it. I suppose this this page was done before before Bisley did, obviously, uh, Judgment and Gotham. But yeah, it's it's just a beautiful and it just, you just see this sort of, it's like a bit of a horror. You have these sort of like kids toys and everything like that. And then you just have these mechanical arms coming in with, with the baby's bottle coming towards the crib. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a really interesting splash page because it's a very different kind of what I call kapow moment. You know, normally a splash page is meant to just be like a huge, massive surprise or shock or great, you know, punch or whatever. And this is that. This is a massive shock, but it's in a weird sort of subdued, terrifying way. You know, you, you mentioned all the juxtaposition of 
everything. Absolutely. And those stuffed animals, they're freaking terrifying. It's like if Jim Henson tried to create the most terrifying Muppets he could. You know, it's like, you know, so you know, all I can think is, who went shopping for these things? It did I, I, I imagine maybe Stag or he hired his, his flunky to go buy these things. But man, they are twisted. I would not put these poor creatures around a baby. Man, terrifying. But it's a very powerful page. It's very powerful. And the kicker is you just vaguely see metamorphosis face through the glass and he's just going oh my god and it's yeah. it's just very very powerful page and then that follows up with him just sort of looking at it and then the anger is just building in him and he is just getting angrier and angrier as he's just looking at looking at his at his son surrounded in this sort of horrific horrific nursery mm-hmm Mm. And then he just leads in and then he just explodes and he takes out both Dimitri and Buddy with just one bang. You feel so bad for those guys because they're just there to help. And, you know, but you understand why Rex is lashing out. I mean, the whole thing, it, it, there's so many different pieces to it. First of all, it's absolutely terrible what's happened to the baby. But then the flip side is you think the baby turned the delivery doctor into mercury. First of all, disgusting. Second of all, oh my gosh, you know, what What do you do? How do you handle that? How do you prevent a baby from murdering another person by accident? Now, milking the baby for some magical gel or goop that's going to be fuel is different, but how do you take care of an infant that could kill everyone who touches it? I, it's, it's a t- I'm not, again, I'm not endorsing what Stag's doing, but it, it does create some interesting questions it, it does it, it's just a very powerful scene and it's ju- you just see rex he's just saying that's my son my son and just smashes through the window mm. it's just and then of course we then come to the start of rex versus guy and i just love the entrance of guy he, rex is approaching the crib and then you just see guy in the foreground with his arms folded and he's just saying you know like uh what a bet calcium lips and then he, and then the next scene where he's just he's just sitting by the wall and he's got his arms folded and there's this just shadow coming across half his face and he just looks so I suppose foreboding as he's just standing there. Oh, it's expertly done. Bart Shears really did a great job here, and and, and it does lead me to wonder, you know, from a from a building a story perspective, you know, this is a story about Rex and his family and getting his son. You know, if, if you think about that naturally, who the villain would be? Eh, probably Java, but they've already done that, so for Keith Giffen to sit there and brainstorm the plot and come up with the idea of putting Guy Gardner in there. And it makes me wonder if he did that because, you know, he knew Bart Sears could just totally knock it out of the park or did he do it because he thought a fight between Metamorpho and Guy Gardner would be interesting? I don't really know. Cause it's not, it's sort of unexpected. If you really step back from it, there's no history between these two characters, but boy, it is a welcome, welcome treat. I mean, the, the, the fight between them is great. The, the verbal exchanges between them is great. The visuals on Guy Gardner is fantastic. So while it's not something I would have expected, uh, it really, is fantastic in the issue it's just fantastic and then you go and guy is on the sort of the up and he's just he's he's fully confident and he's just cracking these sort of dad jokes you know like here's something i learned from the drill team and he produces a drill from his ring and then he he puts an advice on metamorpho and he says this will put the pressure on i advise you to hit the road it's sort of like you see the confidence coming in him and then He's saying, you can't beat me. I'm better than you in everything. There's nothing you can do. And then you suddenly hear plank. And Bex goes, want to bet on it? And Guy goes, uh, gold. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great idea. And it looks fantastic. Now, I got to mention one more funny dad joke. Rex turns to gas to escape the vice. And 
guy says, not bad. You escaped by becoming a giant burp, which just cracked me up. I mean, it's it's such a dorky thing, but uh, maybe I just like, you know, gas humor. I don't know. But it made me laugh. <laughs> and then even even with him turning into gold, you, you actually saw a guy sort of being a bit intuitive and he uses a ring to grab one of the big teddy bears and he mm-hmm. he uses that to sort of squeeze metamorpho together and he's saying i'm number one you know like but then he just gets hit by rex with a golden and he falls to the ground and there's this image there on page 19 the third panel where he's fallen to the ground and he's just hit and Rex does have to say any more clever remarks and you, you see the picture of Guy and you can see the red mist coming down over him and he's just saying kill you and he's all reason has now left his mind he's just swinging wildly and he's just, he's just letting the anger and Rex is just able to take him out after that it's just very well done by Giffen just the whole I suppose characteristics of, of that Oh, the, the beating is so brutal so brutal and so amazing I mean just illustrated wise it's gorgeous and and yeah, everything you just described about the way you feel it and the, and the way you feel Guy and you feel Metamorpho, what they're going through. Oh. Now, I will say, uh, I realized when I was reading that page, I'm like, oh, this is a nine-panel grid. Oh, I bet Keith Giffen did do the breakdowns. So Because sometimes Keith did the breakdowns, uh, or I should say, sometimes Bart Sears followed Keith's breakdowns, and sometimes he didn't. Uh, with this issue, uh, Bart Sears not only penciled it, he also inked it, which is very unusual for Bart to do. I don't think he's done that on any other Justice League Europe issue so far. So seeing Bart do his own inks, maybe he didn't have as much time to do the breakdowns, I don't know, and so he was more willing to follow Keith's breakdowns, I'm not sure, but with all the nine-panel grading, I assume that is definitely coming from Giffen. I think so, too, and it's just at the end, even Rex is sort of, like, shocked at what he's done to Guy, he's just done a number on him completely, and he's just going, geez, Guy, and Guy, it's just, his brain has just gone into automatic, and he's still going for him, and he just has to sort of knock him out and just put him on the ground. And yeah. it's, it's just an un- unbelievable beating that Rex gave him there. And uh, as Rex said, he, he could he could have thought of other ways to beat him, but I say once he hit Guy with that with that one blow, just the red mist just had descended on him completely and he just he couldn't think anymore. He it was just pure instinct, just try and kill Rex and he and he was knocked out as a result of it. You're right. I, di- I didn't notice that one panel the, right before Rex knocks him out. You're right. It's like Rex is regretting this. Rex is feeling bad. Bad, but yet he knows guy's not going to stop so he has to end it oh jeez very powerful and then and then you just go to the next bit there where he's after knocking him down and he just says oh where, what about the kid and he just looks at him and he sees his face and he just doesn't know what's and, he, and you just see the tear and then it was a brilliant last panel there before the before the final splash page where it says metamorphos step away from the crib now and you don't know what's happening and then you turn the page and then you see the metal men arrive Oh, the metal men under Bart Sears' pencil and ink is just freaking gorgeous. They look so good. Oh, they just they just look amazing. I think this is probably the second time that I actually seen the metal men before because I remember there was a UK reprint. They did a reprint of a Brave and the Bold between Batman and the Metal Men. But this would have been, I suppose, the first time seeing them in this era and they look they look amazing. 
It's just, you know, just there. Now you mention it, I wonder, this could have potentially been the first time I saw him, too. Now I think about well, I, mean, I guess I would have saw him in Crisis. But the first time I ever, you know, where they were ever sort of, not a headliner, but at least a featured character in the book. That may be the first time I've really seen that. Now i got to go back a page where we, with the baby. Because it's interesting, like, my, my physical copy, man, the paper just sucked the color out of this thing. Like, the, it, it, everything's re- when I look at this versus the digital version that, uh, again, I'm looking at the one in com- on uh, Comixology. It's the digital collection of Just Like Europe number volume six. And they reprint this issue in there. You can also see the same issue, by the way, in DC Universe. But uh, And digitally, you can really see it a lot better on the baby. The baby has these very strange splotches of color, like almost like a teal or a, a, a greenish blue on its eyes and its chin. And it just looks so sad that you're like, oh my gosh, this poor baby. So, you know, it's got these birth defects and it just makes you so sad. Now, what I just noticed literally as we're talking on that same page, one, two, three, four, the fourth panel down where Rex is crying behind him, it's all black, but you see his eyes again with the tear coming down. And maybe that's what you were describing when you mentioned the tear, yeah. but in the same panel, you see him crying twice and it's really powerfully done. It is. It's, oh, it's, 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 it's just a powerful image. But then final one, when he hears that someone's telling him to step away from the crib, tears are gone and it's just anger in the eyes. Who's, yeah. who's there trying to prevent me from coming to my kid again? Yeah, absolutely. I got one more art note to mention uh, all the way back on page three. When Rex comes in, it's actually pretty funny. Rex comes in and like insists that he's going out to go get his son. And he's just so adamant. And he's like arguing with Captain Adam about it. But Captain Adam's not arguing back. You know, Rex is uh, he's like, I'm going and you're not going to stop me. Captain Adam's like, okay. You know, like, sure thing. No, no one's going to stop me. Okay, no one's trying to stop you. I mean, it's just kind of funny. But um, Captain Adam then, uh, towards the end of the page there, he goes ahead and activates his armor. You know, that exoskeleton that, or exoskeleton, whatever you want to call it, that he wears. And man, Bart Sears draws that so awesome awesome, man. As it's like coming across Captain Adam, you can see like the thickness of that metal. It just looks so freaking cool. Now, he's done this before, and I've mentioned on the show before, but it just looks so awesome the way Sears draws that. That actually is a very good point. It's just amazing just seeing the flesh part of the face still still exposed, but the part of his hair is still exposed, but then you see the silver just sort of coming up uh, coming up over it. He, he actually does that very well, I must yeah. say. He, 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 he is definitely the artist for Captain Adam, I must, I must admit. Well, it, no one does shiny better than Bart Sears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I love the thickness of it, too, that you can just see that metal shell is a good, I don't know, quarter inch thick uh, or maybe even half inch thick uh, outside of his uh, – that sticks out above his skin level, which is pretty cool. Now, overall, uh, I would it's a great issue. Really enjoyed it. I did not know what to expect going in. I had not read this probably since it was first published. So go, I wasn't quite sure how much I would enjoy it, and I really did enjoy it a lot. There are some funny bits in it, but there aren't a lot of really heavy laugh-out-loud moments. But i got to say, Bill Mester Loeb's, you know, he's, he's the scripter at this point. He's really doing doing a good job capturing the characters' voices. This feels very accurate to Rex to me. It really does feel like I'm hearing that character. It feels like I'm hearing Dimitri. You know, I, I've been very pleased with how uh, that's going. It's going very well. And even even Guy's voice, I think he has actually got him very well. Mm. From, you know, like he, he's sort of following on from what Demetrius has, has done in, in the JLI title and... You actually felt sorry for Guy when he, you know, like he, he's just so stupid. He doesn't know how to stop, and he, he just gets <laughs> he, he just gets beaten down as a result. But it, yeah. it actually is uh, excellent scripting by by Mesner Lobes. Yeah. So overall, great issue. I loved it. I hope you did too. Oh, it's an amazing issue, and uh, I, I, I actually think this was one of the very first JLEs that I purchased, so um, it, it was great to sort of uh, come back to it again. Awesome. All right, folks, that's going to close out the issue. Now we're going to move on to our next segment, something I like to call... Character Spotlight. 
This is where the guest is asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters from this issue, not specifically an origin recap, but more about where the characters were in the DC Universe before uh, interacting with the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI may have had on their lives. Now, Jimmy, we have asked you to cover Simon and Sapphire Stag. Uh, thanks, Shag, and uh, welcome to the Stag Party, which... I thought was which I which I which I thought was a humorous enough entrance to it, but then I realised that uh, Giffen and Demetrius actually called Justice League Europe the Stag Party as well, so I'm, I'm just copying from them. But anyway, copy from the best. Copy from the best. That's what you need to do. So both Simon and Sapphire Stag were introduced by the team of Bob Haney and Ramona Freden in Brave and the Bold number fifty-seven, cover dated January nineteen sixty-five, which, to no one's surprise, was also the first appearance of Metamorpho. Simon Stag, who depressed. Nicknamed Mr. Millions, was described as a brilliant scientist and tycoon who loved only power and his only daughter Sapphire. He hired Rex Mason, a soldier of fortune who went on exploration missions on his behalf. During his employment with Simons, Rex became involved with his daughter Sapphire and was engaged to be married to her. Sapphire was presented as a pampered rich girl, but nothing like the bimbo she comes across in JLE. Rex's upcoming marriage to Sapphire infuriated Simon, who believed no one was good enough for a Sapphire. To that end, he had offered Rex $1 million to obtain the Orb of Ra. However, during the mission, Java, under Simon's instructions, knocked Rex out in the Egyptian pyramid and abandoned him there. Rex was then transformed by a meteor to become the elemental man, Metamorpho. On his return, Simon Stagg used the orb to weaken Rex. However, he was contrite to see Rex's condition, claiming he only wanted to maroon him and tried to use the scientific skills to cure him, but to no avail. Sapphire proclaimed that she was still in love with him and convinced Rex to use his powers for good. Meanwhile, Simon hid the orb in another part of the mansion as a means to control him. The next Brave and the Bold issue also revealed that Mara, Simon's wife, had died when Sapphire was a young girl and that, that Sapphire was now the image of Mara, which foreshadows later stories of Simon's devotion to his daughter. Devotion, in quotes. Devotion, in <laughs> big quotes. Yeah. <laughs> the Brave and the Bold issues led to an ongoing Metamorphosis series where Simon and Sapphire continue to be part of Rex's stories, with Simon delaying trying to cure Rex in order to use Rex's powers for his own benefit, and Sapphire professing her love for Rex. That changed at the penultimate issue, issue 16, when she married Wally Bannister, although he was later killed off in the following final issue and was never mentioned again. I've never even heard of that until you did this write-up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Stags continue to appear as part of Metamorpho's cast in Brave and the Bold, Action Comics, World's Finest, and First Issue Special, which I believe you know something about. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Rex later became part of Batman's Outsiders team, Siskoid's favorite team, in the 1980s. <laughs> in issue 16 of that series, Rex tried to reunite with Sapphire, but Simon killed him using multiple replicas of the Orb of Ra. Rex was later revived with the help of the Outsiders, but without the possibility of returning to normal. Simon Stagg eventually relented to the romance of Rex and Sapphire, and they were both married in Batman and the Outsiders Annual Number 2. In Outsiders 21, Rex asked Simon to help him become human again, and while Stagg initially refused, relented quickly when it was revealed that Rex and Sapphire were hoping to have a baby. In issue 22, it actually saw Rex and Sapphire adopt a baby, although that baby never appeared subsequently. Hmm. Which was um, one of Mike Barr's, I suppose, throwaway lines. <laughs> so that was actually the last appearance of both Simon and Sapphire until Justice League Europe number five. Both will, of course, be appearing next issue, so no spoilers. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Simon Stagg will appear in about eight issues' time in the story, which also links to the origins of the Crimson Fox. But the next issue, issue 12, 
Yusuf would be the last appearance of Safar in the Bahaha era, mm. which is unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. The next appearance of Simon Sapphire occurs in the Great Metamorphosis series from 1993 by Mark Wade and Graham Nolan, which had Rex in an Indiana Jones-style crusade and which revealed a slightly creepier side to Simon's devotion to his daughter. When I say creepier, I mean really creepy. That was a fun miniseries, though. I remember that one. It was an excellent miniseries. And again, it was a series where he actually went to Ireland. So it was, ah, it, was, okay. it, was it was one that I enjoy. Although, of course, the Irish people that he met were Irish terrorists, but sure. We can't oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 2007 saw Dan Jorgens retell the early Metamorpho tales in a more modern way in Metamorpho Year One. Simon Stagg was now revealed to be the second richest man alive, and he wanted to get rid of Rex to boost his viewings for his reality TV show Treasure Quest, in which Rex was the main star. In the new 52 area, Simon and Sapphire were part of the Legends of Tomorrow miniseries, another series which I think you're aware of, uh, Shane. Yep, sure am. <laughs> and are still an integral part of Jeff Lemire's The Terrific series. Simon and Sapphire appeared in both the Justice League animated series and in Beware the Batman. Simon Stagg has also appeared in the live-action The Flash TV series, where he's portrayed by William Sadler, who has also appeared in Die Hard 2, Shawshank Redemption, and Iron Man 3 as the U.S. President. Hmm. So, and then finally, this is something that I found unusual. Simon Stagg replica, complete with his catchphrase, by Godfrey, appeared in the Dick Tracy comic by Joe Staten in February 2018, where he was killed off by the gangster Ghost Pepper. <laughs> That's and crazy. It is crazy. And when I saw it, he looked exactly like how he was in, in the in the 1960s series. So it's it's just amazing that uh, Joe Staten was able to bring that in. Jimmy and I were talking about this before the show got started, trying to figure out the connection there between like Joe Staten and Metamorpho. We couldn't really find it. But I do know that uh, at conventions I, that I've seen, Joe Staten and Ramona Fraden's tables have been close together. And maybe just coincidence or whatever. But it could also be just an awesome tribute back to some fantastic comics. And maybe Man, you know, Stag and Metamorpho and, and Sapphire's origins and Bob Haney and Ramona Fraden. I mean, can you get a better pedigree than that? I'm not sure, because that's pretty awesome. It's an, it's an amazing pedigree. And just e even looking at the earlier stories with Ramona Fraden, the way that she draws all the characters, they're just they're just so amazing. That first issue special you mentioned, yes. I, Rob and I covered that on a previous episode of the Fire and Water podcast. And it's so much fun, because it is it really walks the border of a humor comic and a superhero comic. And it is just so much fun. And Frayden's art is amazing. And I now I haven't read the early Metamorpho stories where you talked about you mentioned Sapphire uh, had sort of a different personality, but I, definitely in the first issue special she was kind of the the bimbo type character. She was still capable, but she was very wrapped up in money and status and daddy gives me an allowance and all this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, like in the new issues that I've read of her early stories, she is spoilt, but I don't think she comes across as the idiot that she comes across up in in Justice League Europe, like the sort of like like what she was saying. In the, at the end of Justice League 4 uh, do you speak French to the taxi driver and says no oh that's a pity and he continues <laughs> speaking to her in English she doesn't realize well that was a fantastic recap on Simon Stagg and Sapphire I learned quite a bit actually so thank you so much for doing that really appreciate it yeah no problem at all Shaq and now we come to the toughest decision folks we are here now to battle it out for the coveted Wahaha <laughs> Award 
This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Jimmy will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bahaha Award. Jimmy, you're the guest, sir. So what would you say is the funniest moment in the issue? Well, for me, the funniest moment in the issue occurs on page four, where Oberon is talking to Captain Atom, and Guy Gardner overhears them talking about it, and when they mention Simon Stagg, and you you see Guy Gardner going, Mr. Capitalism, tough, self-reliant, the classiest cutthroat I ever met, and and he, he creeps up uh, while Atom and Oberon are still talking and, and Captain Atom is saying, well, maybe one of your guys could come in as backup, but someone who's discreet, diplomatic. And then you hear Guy Gardner say, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, what, and what really gets it for me is Oberon's reaction. You can see Oberon going, Gah! and you can imagine him <laughs> falling to the ground, just <laughs> going, <laughs> that is a very, very funny bit. You are absolutely right there. That's a great one. In, in an issue that doesn't have a lot of bahaha, you know, really busting up moments, that is a fantastic one. And um, I, I'm, I'm going to be struggling here because I think mine's pretty funny too. So we're going to have to figure this out because this, sometimes it's like, there's like a clear winner and then other times it's tricky. This one's tricky. So for me, I liked the moment when they're going over on page 10, when they're going to visit Sapphire and they get up to the house and it's beautiful and there's all the beautiful colored sky. And you got the silhouette of the house. It just looks beautiful as they're approaching the house and uh, they're telling Rex to to, you know, be careful. And he's got to stay calm and not make a mistake. And Rex is like, what do you think I'm going to do? Slug somebody? I got to be tactful. Do I look like some kind of nut? And then the minute Java opens the door, wham! He knocks him out with one, one punch. punch. <laughs> and he comes storming in and Dimitri goes, very tactful. So and that part just cracked me up. So I think both points are genuinely funny. So how do we decide, Jimmy? This is tough. This is going to be tough. I actually, that was, that was my second choice now. That whole, you know, like, oh, do I look like some kind of nut? And then bang, <laughs> Jaff is on the ground. I, I actually really like that one as well. It's going to be a tough one. I uh, Normally I try and offer compromise or I roll over because I've given up a lot lately on this show. I don't really want to give up right now, Jimmy. I think mine's funnier. I mean, the, the, you know, you get the setup, you get... Uh, darn it, you know, both of them get a good setup. They really do. They both lead up to the joke. Well, I'm a generous Irishman, so I, I will grant Rex the Baja Award. I appreciate that because I don't think I was going to give in this time because I really <laughs> genuinely feel like this one's funnier. Uh, so, it, it, and I couldn't let Guy Gardner win another one. Oh my gosh. Not even, and it's not even his book. You know, it's, it's the European book. So there we go. Rex deserves to win it because it's his book. That's, that seems fair. We'll go with that. And what we're really saying, folks, is that I get to win. That's the important thing. I think we should all walk away with here. So, congratulations, Rex. You have won the coveted Boahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. All right, Jimmy, I need to ask a favor. Guy Gardner is a complete mess. He is still unconscious. He is covered in blood uh, from his brawl with Metamorpho. Would you mind keeping an eye on Gardner for a while? I need to step away, uh, just in case he wakes up. And goodness knows what his personality might be like after this bump on the head. Well, I suppose I, I can do that. I should have really brought Jack O'Lantern with me. He'd probably be good to sort of to fight Guy Gardner if he, if he has a very bad personality if he wakes up. But yeah, we'll look after him for you. No problem. I appreciate that. And by the way, I should make it very clear as a child when I read Who's Who, I was convinced that Jack-O-Lantern was just a low-rent Green Lantern. But anyway, um, <laughs> that's it for a discussion for another day. But don't worry, Jimmy, we will bring you back at the end of the show. Well, Jimmy's taking care of that for us. I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Law.
before we get started with your feedback, just a little bit of news. Kev McGuire recently posted a new version of his classic Justice League number one cover. You know, the want to make something of it cover. This time he did one celebrating the year 2020. And it's got the Justice Leaguers all with appropriate social distancing around the numbers 2020. It's hilarious. If you missed it, check Kev McGuire's social media or you can see it on the Justice League International Blahaha podcast social media as well. Regarding the podcast itself, if you are enjoying it, you now have another option of how to listen to it. We are now on Amazon Music, so you can check it out there, as well as obviously Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. You have no reason to not be able to find this podcast, folks. Now, get out on the social medias and let us know what you think about these issues, folks. Use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. And as I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, let me know, and we will assign you the appropriate embassy. Now, we're going to get into your comments, and these come mainly from our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, also from our email and social media. Now, I'm going to be pulling just bits and pieces of it, because there's so much feedback from every episode that there's no way we could possibly get through it. Uh, Actually, the feedback section of the show would be longer than the issue coverage. (laughs) Now, this time out, we're going to be covering the most recent episode featuring Justice League of America number 34 with my guest Rob Kelly, and Justice League Europe number 10 with Darren and Ruth Sutherland. First up is Bradley Knoll. He says, the DC app is missing issue number 34. Four. Had to get the paper version out. Love this run and love your coverage. Well, thank you, Bradley, but you are correct. Yes, some of these issues do not appear on the DC Universe app. They're also not available individually on Comixology. The best way to find some of these issues of Justice League America right now is through the Collected Edition Volume 6 trade paperback, which you can get a hard copy of in various places, or you can get the digital version on Comixology. And if you just watch for DC Comics sales, sooner or later, that volume is going to be on sale for like five bucks. So that's my recommendation on how to get it. That's what I use. All right, then we're from Michael Kramer, who put forth a theory about Kui 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 on how it might be a piece of Atlantis that broke off when the Great Cataclysm struck. And it's a pretty lengthy theory, and uh, Michael put a lot of thought into it, and it makes me worry for his sanity. Uh, he also had another theory, which is, he, is uh, he says, I was recently struck by an idea. What if Maxwell Lord was the real mastermind behind Club JLI? There he is, figuring out his powers. He sees the file on Kui 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 while watching the Gilligan's Island reunion show and jokingly pictures a Club JLI. Then he gets it in his head that he could have the money-strapped Blue Beetle concoct the crazy scheme. If it works, uh, if it doesn't, Beetle gets the blame. A guy will stop bugging Max about getting a maid service because Max can put Beetle and Booster through the ringer. <laughs> I love that. And a little bit of uh, creative rewriting uh, based on what we know about Maxwell Lord in the future. They were from Siskoid from the Canadian Embassy. Now he's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, of course. He does shows such as Zero Hour Strikes, giving that Star Trek, and so many more. And he says, I wonder if Kui 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 has any relation to Krakoa. Now, uh, that's, of course, the living mutant island over in the X-Men. Now, it's interesting, Cisco, that you say that because I had that going through my head as well. I, I may have even verbalized on a previous episode. I'm not really sure, but it uh, definitely has been going through my head as well. Then we heard from Jason Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy novel Monster Problems. Jason says, A nice detail on the Justice League Europe cover is that the Comics Code Authority logo is wafting down with all of the other money. Oh, that's awesome, Jason. We totally didn't catch that. Way to go, Eagle Eyes, Jason. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. Symbol Pending runs a Power Girl blog called Symbol Pending. 
They write, I really do not like Power Girl on this Justice League Europe cover. That face does not do her any favors whatsoever. And truth be told, I'm not too keen on the inside of the issue either. I can't quite put my finger on why. I think it's mostly the hair just seeming a little off. And then Simple Penny goes on to say, maybe I'm just a little salty as Crimson Fox has been seen in a live action show whilst my poor Power Girl has yet to make an appearance. Aww. That's true. Power Girl has not made an appearance in live action. That uh, might cause some ripples in the comic book community, though, based on some of the cosplay I've seen for that character. And regarding Power Girl looking a little bit off, I mean, we hear that a lot about Bart Sears' interpretation of Power Girl and how her face looks a little too masculine and her hair is a little crazy, but, you know, I'll have to go back and look at that specific cover to see if that's off-model from the rest of the Justice League appearances by Bart Sears. Then we're from David Ace Gutierrez, owner and operator of the Katana Banana Fruit Stand. Now, folks, if you stop by, be sure to try their new pumpkin spiced dips. Very tasty. David says, I purchased Justice League America number 34 to read on a plane flight, but I lost it at the airport. I remember hiding the comic from my mom's view because I didn't want to take the heat from her over the cover. Ah, see, there's a lot going on there. First of all, the little kid worried about getting in trouble with the, the cheesecake and didn't want to get the heat. Get it? Fire? Very funny, David. Well done, sir. Then we're from Chris Franklin from the Firewater podcast network he's doing shows such as the house of frankenstein going on right now in october he also does those wonderful toys youtube videos and so much more chris writes this is the last big blahaha for me uh aside from the upcoming disparo storyline the increased emphasis on humor lost me after this one but they went out with quite a bang with this one although now i can't help but see beetle and booster not as idiotic opportunists but actually criminals for embezzling funds from the organization my favorite part of course was aquaman showing up and juxtaposing the old school dc stoicism with a new generation of less than ideal heroes. Chris says, I will admit, Crimson Fox being colored brown always flummoxed me a bit. That's like making Green Lantern blue, like in the JLI TV pilot. (laughs) Uh, And isn't it odd that Batman has been appearing a lot in both Justice League titles here in 1989? Hmm. Yeah, Chris, I can't imagine why why Batman was appearing in so many places in 1989. Then we heard from Kichi Baker from the Sports and Comics Twitter feed. He says, great episode as usual. The guests really make this show. Best part of the cover is that the artist shows that Booster, as opposed to Beetle, is a fan of the full body wax. (laughs) Yes, Keith, you're correct, and you were not the only one to notice that. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, this cover is awesome, though I don't think Fire is put out because of the good girl pose. She'd be all about the notice. Probably more annoyed that she's serving drinks to Booster and Beetle. And there's also plenty of beefcake to go with that cheesecake. Well, Fire's looking hot, Booster and Ted are looking hot too. You know, Liz, you make a good point. Maybe that is why Fire is so mad. It's because she's in the server position rather than just the cheesecake. Hmm. Then Liz goes on to say, Crimson Fox is looking pretty cool herself, but not seeing a fox with her hood. More of a cobra. You know, Liz, I absolutely agree. When I see Crimson Fox, I see a cobra's sort of hood rather than a fox. They were from Paul Hicks from the Australian Embassy. does shows such as Waiting for Doom and DC, OCD, and many more. Paul says, uh, in regard to the last episode, I've met three of the people on this podcast. I think I'll stop there. Ouch, Paul! Yes, Paul has met Rob Kelly, Darren, and Ruth Sutherland. He has not met me, so that was a dig directly at me. You know, Paul, just for the record, I came to Australia to see you, and you refused to see me. Now, it's not my fault that I was part of some massive alien alliance that was planning to invade the Earth and use Australia as our 
beachhead. I'm so sorry if that was some kind of inconvenience for you. But uh, the fact that I came down there and you didn't see me was, uh, I find, quite offensive. All right, up next is Adam Ackerman from our Denmark embassy. Adam writes in, specifically we talked about on the Justice League Europe cover, there was money falling. We talked about how on the cover it was green, on the inside it was brown. Adam writes in to say, so in 1989 there were green and brown French francs. Since like a lot of countries, money, unlike in the States, it is multicolored and different size for different denominations. The brown was 100 francs and the green was 500 francs. So either way, it is not impossible to have different colors, but kind of weird that they're all the same color on that cover and then all the same color on the inside. That's a fair point, Adam. Thanks for that information by the Colored Franks. Then we're from Justin Steiner. It says, I forgot the Mage Agency characters were appearing, but I noticed right away, as I first knew Adam Hughes through his work on that book. Once I discovered comic shops, I read a lot of first and comic code titles. Man, his artwork just sings. Yeah, you're not kidding, Justin. And then Justin says, Rob's story about inking a panel of the annual and the Sutherlings relating Ron Randall's words were great contributions to the episode. Great listening, as always. Huh, well, thanks, Justin. Then we're from Tim Price, who heads up the new Outcasters podcast, all about Batman and the Outsiders, over on the Right On Network. Tim says Adam Hughes really came into his own with Justice League America number 34. In addition to the cheesecake and beefcake, dang, boosters ripped, uh, the variety of facial expressions is phenomenal. It always matches the character's dialogue and plenty of personality in them. Then there's the body language and the physical acting. It's just excellent. Yeah, you're dead on there, man. Adam Hughes has really come into his own at this point. Then he says, I gotta ask, Kara is jogging with Buddy in Justice League Europe. Why? She's super strong and tough, presumably lots of endurance. What possible benefit would it give her? Unless off-panel, she actually just jogged for like 500 miles. With her strength, she doesn't need super speed to cover that kind of distance in a short period of time. And then maybe she's just meeting Buddy for the last block or two. But it doesn't read that way. Weird. You know, you make a good point. I did kind of consider that when they were jogging. I thought that was odd for her to do that. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's part of physical therapy for her recovery from surgery. I'm not really sure. Then we're from Damien Drought Whiter from our England embassy. You can check him and his husband out on the Should I Love This Comic podcast. Damien writes in to say, It's a weird coincidence that this episode, as both of these comics were mountain comics for me, which makes Rob the perfect guest. They were actually nearly six months old by the time I picked them up on Holiday in Devon, and I was so glad to fill that gap in my collection. Oh, that's awesome, man. Uh, so I wonder if they just got to Devon six months late, or whether they just happened to be sitting there waiting for little Damien. Hmm. Uh, and then he says, I feel like there's a slight hint about Crimson Fox, given by the fact that the note seems to come from a very different character than the one Captain Adam met earlier. Weird. Hmm. That could be something uh, sort of hidden beneath the seams there. Interesting observation, Damien. They were from Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. Uh, other than that, I really have no idea who this guy is. Anyway, he writes in to say, Irish Embassy here, and boy, am I bushed. I've been outside with a butterfly net gathering banknotes wafting in the air. We have banknotes from the west coming from Kui Kui Kui, and banknotes floating in from the east from Paris. I wouldn't usually do this, but Maxwell Lord has told me we need to get these gathered as soon as we can, otherwise we don't get paid. <laughs> oh, I love it, Jimmy. Thank you so much. And he goes on to say, it was a great introduction to Crimson Fox. It brings in an international female character into the group with Wolverine-like qualities, and being endorsed by Batman certainly helps. No, absolutely. I, I love how Crimson Fox is a little bit different than the entire league as far as her uh, sort of savage, as you said, Wolverine-like abilities. And then Jimmy ends his message with, thanks, Shag, for a great episode, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Well, Jimmy, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I apologize uh, that, yeah, the back half, the Just League Europe guest, yeah, he wasn't that good. So, anyway, moving on. Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy. He does the Two Dangers for a Girl blog. Martin writes, thanks for another wonderful show with three marvelous human beings as guests. Rob was certainly worth waiting for, and the Sutherlands bring that smooth radio feel. If they're assassins, it would be a delight to be poisoned, stabbed, or simply charmed to death by them. 
Then he says, two great issues once more. But as ever, when the name comes up, Shag, I'm yelling, there's no A or H in Kui, not Kahui. Oh, geez, Martin, you totally called that. I just say a lot of words wrong. So after reading your message here, I, I tried to make a conscious effort to pronounce it Kui in this episode rather than Kahui. So uh, hopefully I did better. Thanks, Martin. Then we're from Ruth and Darren Sutherland from the Rad Adventures Network, who do shows like Warlord Worlds, Trucker Talk, and so many more. And of course, we're our guests on the last episode. Ruth and Darren say, We liked hearing about the Maze Agency Easter eggs in Justice League America. As we mentioned on the show, mysteries are our favorite genre, and we love the Mage Agency. We bought it issue by issue during its run and still love it today. We've even chatted with Professor Allen, who's also a fan a couple times, about doing an episode about the stories, and we really need to make time for that. Yeah! Come on, Professor Allen. Get on the stick, buddy. And then they say we had a wonderful conversation with Mike W. Barr a couple years ago about Maze Agency. He still thinks fondly in the series and still tries to revive it periodically. That's awesome. Uh, It is definitely on my to-find list now. They were from Mike Dynas from the Canadian Embassy, and he's got a question for Rob Kelly. He says, did wanting to go to the Kubert School come from seeing the ads in the comics? It certainly seemed like an exciting prospect, but it just seemed too exotic for me at the time. Hmm. Well, Rob, if you're out there, uh, let Mike Dynas know what inspired you to go to the Kubert School. And you know what? Until Mike wrote this comment, I didn't even know you went to the Kubert School. Man, you kind of keep that close to the vest. Mike goes on to say, and I agree with Rob. It was great to see Aquaman act as Aquaman and not a silly version, just because it's a humor book. It really hammered home how this is really how characters like Boodle would act even if they weren't in a funny JLI book. (laughs) Good point, Mike. You know, from Joshua Romano, who says, Episode 34 was great for your guests. It's always great to hear your podcast life partner, Rob, and the Sutherlands are the Ralph and Sue Dibney of podcasting. You're right there, Joshua. Then heard from Jeff Messer from the Masterstroke Studios in the video series Issues With. He says, One of the best comics of the entire run, JLA number 34, and perhaps the best episode of the podcast, thanks to having the great Rob and Shag duo, and for introducing the Bwahaha world to Darren and Ruth Sutherland, a couple of international intrigue and espionage. Hearing all these great folks celebrate one of the greatest runs in comics is a pure Pure joy. These episodes are renewing my love for the JLI, JLI adventures and giving me a second look at the Justice League Europe books. Oh, that's awesome, Jeff. Thank you so much. And the Sutherlands introduced me to Jeff, so that all works out quite well, doesn't it? Roger Pre wrote in, because remember, when I looked at the cover, I mentioned how I had not seen, uh, until that point, 30 years, I had not seen the bad guys in the background until that point. Roger says, still not seeing Major Disaster in Big Sur. I also heard Booster and Beetle are on the page, too. Hmm, not sure. I'll keep looking. <laughs> Have fun with that, Roger. They were from John Wayne Morris. says, Booster and Beetle stories were the best. And Ranger Gord from our Canadian embassy says, Crimson Fox calls the Justice League a bunch of jive turkeys. <laughs> You're not wrong about that, Ranger Gord. Then Isaac Espenson just writes in to say, Cooey, 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 cooey. Obviously, he's pretty excited. Then we heard from Tom Panarese from Pop Culture Affidavit and Required Reading over in the Two True Freaks podcast network. Tom just simply wrote, Ah, which was a capital A, capital H with an exclamation point. Obviously, it's uh, sort of drawing attention to something like you've noticed something, but it also happens to be Adam Hughes' signature. Well done, Tom. Then heard from Adam Crouch. He says, was about to go upstairs and sort my comic room. So lucky to have this episode pop up to listen to. Well, I hope you enjoyed it, Adam. And Stephen Commander says, this is one of my top three favorite podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Stephen. Let me know what podcast number one and two are, and I will make sure to send the Sutherlands out to assassinate those people. Then heard from Trent Lewis. He says, this issue has always been the apex of the Bwahaha era for me, and you paid tribute to it extremely well, even while having to carry your partner in podcasting through the issue of the episode. I would worry about your back, but I'm confident 
confident in your strength from having to carry your partner for so long. <laughs> uh, thank you, Trent. I'm glad somebody understands me and Rob's relationship. Uh, then Trent says, the deviant chemistry between Beetle and Booster came to a head, with both cash-strapped heroes recently losing their fortunes, yielding to desperation to pull a stupid stunt. I'm not sure, though, if I fully agree that Ted was the corrupting influence. I see their situation and personal chemistry as the catalyst for this doom venture. That said, it was done out of love for themselves, each other, and the money. Well, Trent, that's fair, but uh, it, it was brought to my attention by, I think, Tim Price a long time ago that Beetle happened to be the instigator in a lot of these situations. And then since he brought that to my attention, I've been watching, and sure enough, it does look like most of their hijinks start with Beetle, in, at least in the Justice League book. It's very interesting. Then heard from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and the Legion of Super Bloggers. Dr. Ange says, My dad always used to quote Alphonse and Gaston whenever two people were waiting for the other to enter a room. After you, Alphonse. No, after you, Gaston. No, I insist. After you, Alphonse. And he goes on to say, Keith Giffen must have really liked it because he used it in the 5YL Legion when two robots were tracking Ultra Boy. Thank you so much, Dr. Ange. Jeremy Daw says, As a young collector, this issue was the White Whale. This, among a lot of Adam's work, were often spoke of, but never seen in the 1990s for me personally. Well, I hope, Jeremy, you found it now. Then we heard from Nuno Duarte. says, Great episode. Also, this marks an era as both Justice League America and Justice League Europe showed some of the strongest and most consistent artists, newcomers, who were changing the notion that DC was lagging behind Marvel in the art department. Oh, and this was the first time I realized that the villains were on the cover, too. <laughs> I'm so glad I wasn't alone. Thank you so much. Now, folks, this is where we are going to take a second to thank everyone who shared the show on their social media timeline. Now, I know it is a long list of names. I sell this to you every month. However, remember, these folks show their support and help promote the show. So if to me, it's very, very important that we recognize these individuals. And this time out, we're looking at nearly 70 names of people who helped promote the last episode. Now, if you'd like to be on this list, all you got to do is share the post on Facebook or retweet it on Twitter, and you will be part of the gang and help spread the word to people who may not know about the show. So our thanks to Al Girding, Arturo Altamira, Between the Pages blog, Billy Etchison, Billy Delicious, Boosterific.com, Canadian Geek, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Darren Aru Sutherland, and their Rat Adventures Network account, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles, David A. Gutierrez, David Capoon, DC OCD Cast, Derek J. White, Dr. Ange, Dr. Jennifer Swartz Levine, Dr. Pop Culture Bowling Green State University, Edmore Jr., Green Lantern HG, Herman Lord Zed, Jack Rutherford, Jason Lady, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremy Daw, Jeremy Johnson, Jesse McGill, John C. West, Joshua Ox, Justin Steiner, Connell, Lantern Cast, Lithium, Liz Ann Oswald, Mark Lax, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Ev, Michael Kramer, Mike Dinas, Nuno Duarte, Old Bolty Neck, Relatively Geeky, Richard Field, Rob Kelly and his accounts Film and Water Podcast, For All Mankind, a Super Friends Podcast, Mashcast, Mountain Comics, Pod Dylan, and Treasury Comics. Rod Pruitt, Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sean Lickley, Siskoid, Tim Price, Turbo Comics, Ultron is My Elvis, Vampire Hunter Chuck D, and Zeb Oswald. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of this show, folks, and the community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Rob Kelly or the Sutherlands. But let's face it, it's probably Rob's fault. Now, let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode if I missed you. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Our website, again, is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there in the show post. Over on Facebook, you can find us as Justice League International Blah Ha Podcast or on Twitter at JLI Podcast. And, of course, you can email us at JLI Podcast at gmail.com. 
My thanks again to Rob Kelly and Darren and Ruth Sutherland for appearing on the most recent episode. And my thanks to all of you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. When we come back, we'll see if we can bring Zachy and Jimmy together in the same embassy. Haunted house shut down this season? Then come to the house party that no force can stop. The house of Frankenstein. The Supermates are throwing their annual bash no matter what and inviting some of your favorite horror stars. Lon Chaney Jr. Anyone who enters here without my permission will be considered a trespasser. Lionel Atwell. By heaven, I think you're a worse fiend than your father. Christopher Lee. Don't use long words, Inspector. They don't suit you. Evil and Anchors. We haven't been able to contact Count Alucard so far. Peter Cushing. I've told you before there are times when you shouldn't be alone. Mela Lugosi. He's mine. He don't belong to you. You go away. Barbara Shelley. There have been seven murders committed in the forest of Bandorf in the past five years. Basil Rathbone. But of course I know who did. Haven't you heard? The monster. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. Maggots, Michael. You're eating maggots. How do they taste? And Boris Karloff. <laughs> Plus a few party crashers. Notice anything unusual about Santa Carla yet? No, it's a pretty cool place. If you're a Martian or a vampire. And some amazing friends. Dragon time! Worst thing! Let them take care of your friends, my dear. <laughs> I'll take the robot. You take the wolf thing. Good. I've always had a way with animals. So RSVP to fireandwaterpodcast.com, iTunes, or Spotify, and don't miss the one Halloween party you can count on to be scary in a good way, not the 2020 way. The House of Frankenstein. Okay, so a new podcast needs a new promo. I mean, how do I start? I'm J. David Weeder. You may know me from the internet. I didn't invent the internet, but the internet was invented for me. No, that's way too egotistical. Uh, It's got to be awesome. It's got to catch everybody's attention. Also tell people what the show is about. So first things first, high energy pop music from the 80s. Hi, I'm J. David Weeder, here to tell you about my new podcast, Spockward, a Star Trek podcast where I will talk about Star Trek twice a month. I guess, I guess that's pretty much it. Wow, it feels like there should be something more there, something grand and something epic. It also has to sum the show up, but I don't want to sound desperate. Maybe I should try another take, but this time there needs to be some epic epicness to it. Let's try this. In a world. Oops, oops, oops. Let me try that again. In a universe replete with Star Trek podcasts, one guy will challenge the status quo by boldly talking about Star Trek on the first and third Sunday of every month. Yeah, I probably had it right the first time. Spockword, a Star Trek podcast on the first and third Sunday of every month at spockword.com or wherever podcasts are accessed. It's Star Trek fandom with a heaping helping of social awkwardness. Spockword, you get it? Yeah, you get it. See you at spockword.com. Weeder out. Did I really just say Weeder out? Come on. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yep, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both Zaki and Jimmy together for us. Now, first, Zaki, my thanks to you for appearing on this episode of the show. It has been an absolute blast chatting with you and loving the discussions about the movies, and I will, from now on, use your six-month rule, because I think that makes a lot of darn sense. Why don't you please tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the internets, and while you're doing this, I'm going to go to the kitchen and make a sandwich, because this is going to take you like 20 minutes. (laughs) 
Uh, well, thank you once again for having me on. It was such a thrill. I I love these comics so much, and it's so awesome to just be able to geek out about them. That's just so great. Uh, if you're looking for me online, you can find me at my website, zakiscorner.com. That's Z-A-K-I-S corner. That's also my Twitter. That's also my Instagram. And, and anybody who follows me on Twitter knows that I have too much to say. Not very much of it particularly useful, but hey, you might find something that's confusing. <laughs> um, you can also read my movie reviews at the San Francisco Chronicle and also at IGN. I'm currently watching uh, The Third Day, which is an HBO miniseries, and I'm reviewing that for IGN. And I've got some Halloween TV selections coming up for The Chronicle. And of course, my pride and joy is the movie film podcast, which I co-host with my partner, Brian Hall. I've been doing that since 2012. Uh, Shag just listened to the first episode, which I don't... <laughs> I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemies, I gotta be honest. So uh, I, I am deeply sorry that you, had to, that you had to listen to that. I tend to tell people, I'm like, avoid the first, like, 10 and then i think you'll be fine because you know i mean with podcasting you know it's like you find your legs and then you're fine but but it's it's touch and go for a little bit well in that episode you did say after the rise of the dark knight that the only direction they could go with batman would be to do a batman or and superman movie or a justice league movie so sir all of this uh squarely rests at your feet so all of that is you're to blame <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> I, I, I did a Maxwell Lord on some WB executives, and that's it. Uh, we see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again so much, Jackie. We really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Now, Jimmy, I really appreciate you being on the show. This is fantastic. Four years in the making, man. I'm so glad that we finally got you on the show. Uh, it's a pure pleasure to, to be on the show. I was, I've been listening to, I suppose, the Fire and Water podcast for, for a long time. And to have you come and do a JLI podcast is amazing. And I really appreciate you having me on the show. Well, thank you for the kind words. I, truthfully, the show is nothing without you guys. Because it's me just rambling into a microphone. But you guys are what makes it great. So I'm so glad you joined me on the show. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can find more of you on the interwebs, please. Well, I suppose prior to this, uh, Ryan Daly poached me for, <laughs> to, to, <laughs> for, for two episodes of Midnight Podcasting Hour. So it's episode 19, which was the Bernie Wrightson tribute, where I discussed with him the house mystery story in issue 204, All in the Family by Virgil North and Bernie Wrightson. And then issue 27, which was done this year, which was part of the house of mystery 294, where we discussed the story Congratulations, Mr. Bates. It's a Warlock by Paul Kupperberg and George Tuska. And if you want to dig out as well, I've also been a semi-OCD in the DC OCD cast where I did episode 14 where we discussed Underworld Unleashed. And other than that, then you could find me on the usually uh, hanging around the comments of, of the JLI Bahaha podcast and a few other of the Fire and Water podcasts. And I, I must say, I would love to comment more on the Fire and Water podcast shows because I listen to a load of them and I just don't have time but I, I definitely do make the time to comment on the JLI Bwahaha podcast. Well we always love hearing from the Irish Embassy. We truly do. And by the way Terry O'Malley I did promise you last episode that you would find out where Jimmy McGlinchey had been so there you go. Uh, Alright Jimmy it's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome Shaq. Alright that's going to do it folks. Now come back next episode when we do another one of our Meanwhile episodes because we are going to step away from the main Justice League series to cover Justice League International special number one featuring Mr. Miracle and we'll have another guest host to help me cover the issue. Who will it be? Come on people, you know how this works. You're just going to have to wait and find out next.
You know what? What the hell? I'll tell you for the next episode when we cover Justice League International Special Number One featuring Mr. Miracle, which was written by Keith Giffen and Len Wein with art by Joe Phillips. Our guest will be none other than Joe Phillips himself. That's right. The artist of the Mr. Miracle series and that JLI special will join us to discuss the issue he drew. It's going to be awesome, folks. I cannot wait for you all to hear this super fun chat. And with that, we are done, and it's going to do it for this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Zachy. And I'm Jimmy. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?